Uh, I am DM Samuel, and I am going to be your DM tonight. And I'm here with my players, who I always say are awesome, but you know, we we kind of chat beforehand, and every time we chat, I think how much more awesome they are than even what they were last time. So uh, let's start with Karu. Ah, hello. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Sorry. Me by surprise, I've never gone first. <laughs> I know that's why I picked you. Our <laughs> ASMR star. I am uh, playing Marcel uh, Duran, the Lutrinian storm sorcerer. Excellent, and Nina. Oh, um, I'm playing Emran Ornestra, who is a human storm cleric. And David. Uh, yes, I play actually Tilling Quest, who is a halfling bard. And last but not least, Matt. Hi, I'm Matt. I'm playing Konos, the CL Warlock. All right. Let's start the game now. So who wants to do a recap? <laughs> as much as I would love to, between but after between our last game and this one, my laptop crashed and I had to get it reformatted. Oh, no. And I literally lost all of my notes for this campaign. Oh, no. I've got, like, oh, no. I've, got, I've got like one or two scrap pages of notes back from other stuff I've saved, but like I try to I try to, you know, upload as much stuff to OneDrive as I could, and unfortunately I thought the stuff had made it over, but it didn't. So oh, that sucks. The, like the one thing I remember is basically, you know, we are in finally on we are actually we are we actually say are sailing to California and we actually we were getting there and just as we were getting there we learned there was basically like a plague in the city and we have to go basically check in through customs and anyone who's ill, which is going to include a lot of Captain uh, Sharkface's crew, surviving crew, is things are gonna wind up being quarantined. Right. And we're gonna go see the Queens. <laughs> Thanks right. to that stupid captain. <laughs> oh, that's right. They want Marcel. They Marcel got invited to to visit royalty. Yeah, yeah. Shark face when he when they dot. So when when you rolled up <laughs> in your five point uh, <laughs> at the at Cowport, um, a ship came out to greet you. A small ship, and they basically said, "Here are the rules of the town. Here are the rules of the city." And if you do you agree to these or not? And the rules are within Cowport city walls, there is to be no teleportation, no casting in public, no concealed weaponry, no open deity worship, no fighting, with two exceptions. Exception one is accepting designated areas. Number two is accepting sanctioned duels. So no teleportation, no casting in public. No concealed weaponry, so if you have weapons, you have to have them out, invisible. No open deity worship, so you're not allowed to have a holy symbol. No fighting. And the bottom of the notation, the bottom of the of the posting, says, By order of Captain Lord Tobik, Baron of Jinnuk, Steward of Weltusk, enforced by the Queen's decree. And so everybody was like kind of shrug. Yeah, okay, we'll do that. And then you found out that uh, they required Sharkface's ship, which was manned by a bunch of Hakka, to go to a port, a, a, a dock over on the right of the city because of illness present on board. Um, and because because you all didn't have any illness present, uh, they did not require that of you. However, when Sharkface's ship pulled into the dock, he basically said, 
don't you know who we are? You know, we're, we have royalty here and I can't believe you're, you know, quarantining us, et cetera, et cetera. And they said, what royalty? So by the time you pulled up to your dock, there was the queen's guard waiting for you and basically saying, we're here to escort the royal guests to see the queens. We would like to provide you with a royal welcome as is, you know, proper for your station. Uh, and as you made your way, you were being led through the town, uh, through the city, you um, discovered that the queen's names are Remethus and Delencia. And then we stopped. Um, and what I said to everyone was, well, so actually, before we do that, let's let's go back to the beginning of that session. Was there anything that happened before that? Because that was the very end of the session. So what happened before that um, in the session, just as a quick recap? Anybody remember? I think the most important thing that happened was we finally got a bit of a headway in helping those that had the curse on them and reversing the curse. Um using um emrin's magic but when we when when the ones we managed to remove the curse from instead of remaining as blue goblins they turned into like people with memories of past lives that were like centuries in some cases uh old and no memories of anything that had happened in this life and we had started wondering about uh how all this ramification the implications of of this like soul transfer reborn thing and how the the spell had somehow triggered those memories and reverted them back to what they used to be in their past lives instead of just blue goblins Yeah, and you also found out more information about the Soul Spire in the Threefold Lake, right? Yeah. Well, um, it, it, it brings about the question, like, you know, we assumed the, the lake draining into the other realms was, you know, a representation of a liquid, a, a volume of liquid because of the sinking. But now we're talking about these souls from past generations seem to have been kind of sucked out as well. So... Uh, well, oh, yeah. we also discovered uh, the 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 who Chilling Quest was. Oh, or at least who he he works for, who he's associated with, right? Who the, he works for, uh, the Raven, the Raven Queen, Queen, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you had him write in the book. Uh-huh. Yeah, he wrote a statement that was deemed false. Uh-huh. What was it? What did, what did we ask? That wasn't really important. I just wanted to get his name, and we got his name with Amelia Patron. Yep. Yeah. Um, So uh, you learned that the Soul Spire empties into the Threefold Lake, uh, and something about the Palace of the Faded, the Well of Capitalis, um, and yeah. So you learned those things. Uh, and yeah, 
uh, one other thing, one other major thing you learned. So yes, you you uh, the blue goblins that were quote unquote cured. Uh, two of them were halflings, and two of them were humans. Uh, the two halflings are from eighty six A B and eighty one A B respectively, and the humans are from twenty nine A E and three A E. So A.B. was after Bane, after one of the Bane Wars, mm. and A.E. was after the Evisceration, which was the most recent last Bane War. Uh, so they're yeah. from vastly different centuries. Mm. Yeah, I think like um, more, I think we said like both of those events were released at least a thousand years ago, or at least one of them was. Yeah. And then there was one last thing that was discovered, and that was that Bolum is the son of Delincia. Right. Oh, I don't remember that. Yeah, so he 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 sort of came back in a way that he was able to converse with Konos a lot, and he said something about uh, his brothers and sisters, and that led you all to question: Well, what do you what do you mean, brothers and sisters? Like, what what are the brothers and sisters? Are they where are they? And what are their names and all those sorts of things. And he, he didn't really have a good answer for most of that. But when he was answering and talking to you, uh, he basically said that he, Delencia was his mother. I know we established earlier that Bolum was is like at least the essence that is Bolum is kind of this sort of out of time entity, like from, like it literally says, you know, it doesn't know when, or, or time just isn't like as uh, isn't the same concept to it as it is as it is like to us. Like it doesn't measure days and minutes and anything like that. Right. He, he doesn't really see it as a linear thing. Right. Right. Yeah. He he can move through time in a way, or he conceives of time in a way that's different from how you conceive of time. So part of the problem with Go when you went to Darkport. Part of the reason he disappeared was he couldn't go to that place somehow because he had misunderstood. Or remember when you talked about the um, the dog and how he wanted to kill the dog, but then you absorbed the dog, and then he was like, "Well, I made a mistake. I I wasn't. I I was. I thought it was a different time. Like he he mm. was. He wasn't even sure. Like his conception of time is so different from yours that for him." he's sort of on a different time plane in a way because the time doesn't matter to him so much that he can even track it, but he misunderstood still what time period he's in right now. So it kind of matters and kind of doesn't to him. It's, it's, it's not that it doesn't matter really necessarily. It's more that he doesn't know how to track time the same way that you do. Right. So, you know, it's, it's almost like, um, if you could think of if somebody went to sleep for a thousand years, right, and then they woke up and you told them a thousand years passed and now look at all of the differences in the world, they might not be able to conceive of like what happened in between those thousand years, but they would understand the concept of a thousand years passing mm-hmm. and progress having been made and things being different because that much time passed, right? Or even if somebody went to sleep for a hundred years and you said a hundred years passed, you know, it's been been a century, they would understand. Like and just like the way that we could say, well, right now it's 2020, think about what 1920 was, you might not really be able to conceive of what 1920 was, depending on how much you know about 1920, but you can understand that it's a hundred years ago, 
Mm. And you can understand that somebody that's 103 right now was three years old when 1920 was happening, right? But Bolam doesn't really conceive of time that way. He's his conceptions really are about place and location, not time. It reminds me of like the prophets from uh, Deep Space Nine a bit. Okay, yeah. yeah. It's like nonlinear, nonlinear entities that. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of the different. Um, you have like the like a lot a dot. You have a line, and then you have like three dimensional space, and mm-hmm. then time for us is a line again. Mm-hmm. But someone who right. was in like a fourth or like a fifth dimension would see time as as more as a three dimensional space, and that's kind of mm-hmm. what's happening with Volum. For right. Volum, it's not a line; it's a it's a three dimensional space that mm-hmm. he can see all of. For us, right. it's just a, a line going forward and backwards, and we don't mm-hmm. see the rest because we're in a like dimension below. Right, right. Yeah, that's a really good way to explain it. Yeah, and. And that's true of every artifact in this setting, right? That's not specific to Bolum. That's specific to artifacts. That's what makes them an artifact in this setting. So the artif- the idea of being an artifact is it has a soul or a piece of a soul in it. You don't, you're not sure how complete or incomplete that soul is in any given case, but it does have, it has a living essence in it. But that living essence doesn't, experience time in the same way that we do so it has that fourth dimensional aspect of time where it's more of a location in a cube than it is a location along a line that only goes in one direction i remember reading a lot about higher dimensions and that's basically how they explain it (laughs) (laughs) we're getting some 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 terry pratchett level stuff in here (laughs) i love it (laughs) um I take that as a great compliment. (laughs) Terry Pratchett was awesome. So there was one last thing that we did at the end of the session, and that was that even though I put you on the island, I also said to you, now the journey to the island was several days, and we didn't really go through that. So if there's something that you wanted to say that you were doing during those days of, you know, of, of travel, let me know, and then we can deal with that. And um, so uh, Matt sent me some things. things, but does but does anybody else have anything? There was one of the books that we haven't read that I think yeah. uh, Marcel wanted to like take a stab at reading on the way to Calport, which was the Pactus Hydronicus. Uh, Marcel starts to read that book, and. Um, the first third of the book is a treatise on how waves work and how creatures use their different motilities, their, their different ways of moving, to move through those waves. It's very much a sort of boring, science-based, here's energies and here's what makes a wave get a peek and like kind of um, seems like it wouldn't be interesting at all. And then though, after that first third, like, you know, it's signed by some, you know, sir, something, something, right. It's a name you don't recognize and, you know, some obvious scholar. Right. But then at the end of that third, then it starts to talk about the relationship between that energy in waves and the blue plateau. 
and how the blue plateau, the energy that's in the blue plateau is actually what causes the waves. That the first third of the book is just describing the waves and how they operate and how they work and how they move and how they interact with each other and how creatures live in them and on them and through them and how water vessels are able to be propelled by wind outside of them and you know this kind of thing. But then the the next two thirds of the book is about how the reason that entire thing happens is that the blue plateau produces energy that radiates out from the plateau itself and affects the common plateau and what you can get through and still understand in terms of how you're going. The main part of that that's interesting is it talks about how the, the fact that if you can figure out how that interchange happens, how the waves that radiate out, that energy that's radiating out from the blue plateau, how it gets to the common plateau, you can affect the blue plateau and you can travel back and forth. Because usually if something is going to affect from one plateau to another, it has to actually go through either a rift, a ladder, or a gate. And what this book is saying is that the Blue Plateau has energy that radiates at such a strange energy type or level or wavelength or energy level, you're not really sure what they're trying to say, that it doesn't need a gate or a ladder. It can just go from the Blue Plateau to the Common Plateau. And then by the, by the time you get to that, there's still about 20 pages left in that book, but then you make it to Calport. So there's about 20 pages that you haven't read yet. Does Amaran speak Elvish at all, or read Elvish? No? Okay. Because we have a book called Herbal Healing Broths in Elvish. We also have Herbs and Tonics of Calrot, and then How to Cook in Dwarvish. That's what I want to read. <laughs> <laughs> so you have Comprehend Languages. You can read everything. Mm. <laughs> um, those books literally are exactly what they say. The <laughs> sure. The er- the herbs and tonics, though, that actually has some recipes for things like natural healing potions that would not require magical infusions. So if you could find those herbs, you could mix them into a tonic that has a healing, the properties of a healing potion. But mechanically speaking, you're making a healing potion without magic. Okay. Okay. You found um, a crafting book. Yeah. The, uh, the, um, the, uh, the dwarven cooking one literally has old dwarven recipes. And Anything interesting I want to try out? All of it. You want to try all of it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, some of the some of the items in the book, some of the pieces of the recipes are uh, describing meats that you've never heard of, of creatures that you've never heard of. Um, so that's something that might be tangentially interesting if you ever wanted to go through and try to find those things. Uh, they would probably be delicacies nowadays because if there's something you've not heard of, it probably it's pre-sinking, right? So maybe those things don't exist anymore, but maybe they do depending on what island you're on, right? Okay. Um, Imran, any anything? Pilker's name is Socks. All I decided on this trip. (laughs) Okay. 
There's more than one though, right? Didn't your mom have like three or four? Yeah, there's more than one, but there's one that I keep like in my hood and that one is socks. Okay. Socks. All right. Sounds good. Uh, no, I don't think there was any. <laughs> um, okay. Um, so Matt wanted Konos to try to do a couple of things. Um, yeah. So which one would you like to deal with first? Let's do the the dream art. So basically, I wanted to cast dream to try to communicate. Since Emerald had been, you know, using sending to communicate with her father and learning about, you know, the the whole ref- refugee situation uh, in California, I just wanted to try to cast dream to essentially communicate with Olgret, just to get just to have like a more than twenty five word conversation and just learn more okay. about the situation there. So I would do this. I would I would do this. You know, something like so. It's basically you you choose a you choose a creature known to you as the target of the spell. They have to be on the same plane of existence. Um, I enter a trance state, or I could do this with a, with somebody else, uh, essentially being a messenger. Uh, the messenger appears in the creature's dreams and can converse with the target as long as it remains asleep th- through the duration of the spell, which is eight hours. Uh, I can also shape the environment. So we we ta- we had talked about at one point using this to communicate with the refugees while they were still sailing, uh, to essentially say, you know, hey, here's the here's like the the navigational landmarks. Here's what the the stars, the constellations were. Use these for as a guide for sailing and whatnot. Um, so essentially, it's um, yeah, it's essentially just it's a, it's a beefed up version of of the sending spell. Okay, but basically, it, you're creating like a dream world for you and your target to converse in they're asleep you're asleep or trancing yeah um and i wouldn't i would make it let's make it let's make it look appear like um let's make it appear like Olgret's office something something he you know recognizes from being familiar with okay okay you're gonna make me do the Olgret voice (laughs) 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 okay so it it works um, what would you like to ask him or or say to him? So I've heard that you've are all have that the you and all the refugees from uh, from Trastenton have arrived in Calport. How how are things there? Mm. How are you all? Well, they've got us sequestered. That's not so happy. We're in a dirty part of town. It's ugly, big city. They don't take care of it. It's pretty obvious. There's a bunch of sick people around. Whereabouts whereabouts in Calport are you? We're up in the dock ward. They put us in the Ridgeline District. We're just below a ridge north of the docks. It's all right, I guess. They haven't been mean to us. We're just stuck up here, not being able to talk to anybody except for ourselves and the other sick people. So they're not allowing any visitors or anything like that? Not unless you're already stuck there. Have they told you have have they told you when you'd be able to leave or if you can leave? As soon as everybody's well. Okay. Or dead. In our in all the sailing we've been doing, we've been seeing people who have been developing a strange affliction. They are turning into like sea creatures i think we may have we it's simple similar to what we saw on on the crab island um but we've been seeing that in other yeah, parts of the that's world why they put us in this place lucanius is it just him is it spread to others just him okay how how is lucanius is he 
is he recovering at all? Is he still alive? Comatose. Comatose. Well, no, the it's clerics, news. you know, they tried a bunch of stuff and none of it worked, and then he fell asleep one time and stayed that way. Emerin might be able to we we think we fa- we think I mean we might he she might be able to try to do something with her for him. Hmm. That'd be great if they let her in. All right. Um my my brother Theraval, is he is he did he make it? Is he there with you? He that blue like you? Yeah. Darker hair though. Yeah, him and a couple other people. They they hang out together. They don't uh they don't they're not mean or rude, but they don't talk to very many other people. That's good. Um if when we make it there I'll I'll try to we'll we'll, we'll try to come and we'll try to come and help us if some if we can just tell him I'm tell him I miss him and I'm thinking about him. All right, I'll, I'll give him the message, I guess. Thanks. Anything else? No. I got a question for you. Sure. Where'd all those damn blue goblins come from? Well, that's a story, and I spend the next six hours essentially telling him that story, because it'll probably take that long. <laughs> How much do you tell him? Hmm. Again, I wish I had my notes. Um, <laughs> I- I'm... I'll I'll tell him everything. I'll tell him you know, okay. the one the one I mean the ones we we found a bunch on this Hulka Island. We found a bunch that are part of this pirate crew, and they've they've been bound to this state or developed this affliction essentially because of you know the deal that uh, Sharkface that Sharkface made. And again, if I, and if, again, if I miss telling of any of this, feel free to correct me. It's just it's what I remember. Um. I don't know if it's fair to blame all the blue goblins on Sharkface. Okay. He made a deal to get power for him and his crew, not for not to create all the blue goblins. Okay. Remember the the blue basically he sent his crew off, he didn't know like to their demise, including his brother. Right. And they replaced their crew, you know, the people he got back he got goblins to replace his crew. And he even said, you know, they're not bad sailors. They're they're pretty good crew in terms of running a ship. But, you know, that's basically all he knew. And then he knew that some of them were, you know, they tried to go through that process too. And they got like crab hands and they got sick and it's bad. Right. So I, I don't, um, I don't know that it's fair to blame it on him. Although you can, if that's what you want to tell Olgrad, it's fine. But <laughs> no, I'm. It would be more of a case of what I said. Um, you know, I'm I'm just don't have don't have my 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 crutch to rely on. So, I mean, so. you you might say, well, those that that gang with the blue eye painting, right? Mm-hmm. You might, I mean, because that that would be the yeah, that's closest that's the group that's tied in with with shark with the yeah. pirates and sharkface. Yeah, right. Right. I was I was gonna say the sharkface's crew consisted of crew that got basically cursed for power. And blue goblins that got hired on that were basically given to him by the cults or whatever. But the those are two separate things. Aren't they? Because that's why when the blue goblins got cured, they turned into like completely different people. 
Right. So the but they so were what born ha- as blue goblins. Yeah. Yeah, in the little weird amniotic sacks. Yeah, that, that's yeah, that's right. really yeah. weird now. Um. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah. So what Sharkface told you was he was part of a regular pirate crew, and most of his staff was human, including himself. Right, him and his brother. They were running the ship. But then the pirate group, the Red Tooth Pirates, right? Silver Tooth Pirates, right? They whatever. They they made a deal and the pirate boss who Sharktooth was not the pirate, he was boss of his own ship, but not any right. others. Right. Their that boss, the pirate clan boss, okay, he said, Hey, let's increase our power we can get lots of power we can get lots of stuff and that's when Sharkface went and had his transformation and it worked fine his brother went and he so he when it happened to him he came back and said oh this is great look what i can do right and then everybody almost all the humans and other people on his ship went to go have whatever done to them Right. He didn't really he wasn't really specific about what they did to make this happen. But they all went to go have the transformation applied to themselves. And his crew, so that he could still do his pirating business, his crew was replaced with blue goblins. And then two things happened. Number one, the blue goblins started like being translated into like crabs and started growing crab claws and weird stuff. That's that happened but also his crew it wasn't working on them so he started getting these messages back that hey it's not working all your crew's dying including your brother and that's what happened so he didn't go recruit the blue goblins to replace his crew they were given to him by the pirate boss now where the pirate boss got them nobody knows like you don't know that okay so it's more. T- so it's ma- so it's probably more me telling him, not telling him where exactly they've come from, but more just so here's all the situations and places we've encountered them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I mean, think if you think about what happened on the Haka Island, right? They there were only a couple, right? And then all of a sudden, you found this nest, right? Of them, like they mm-hmm. they were everywhere, and you killed you you know destroyed them all, mm-hmm. right? right? They were growing from the trees and all that stuff. So where that when did that like that's you didn't see the impetus of that. It just suddenly, like, you discovered them. So, you can imagine that that happened on Trastenfin, right? On on Thud Island, which is where Trastenfin is. And then all of a sudden, they started being overrun with goblins, right? Because nobody was out looking at the trees to find goblin sacks to kill them. So, whereas you all had had your experience in the Palace of Mud with these weird blue goblins... And you had already seen it on the ship. You saw them growing and incubating, right? And so on on uh, on Sharkface's ship, actually, right? And then you saw more of those sack things on the island, and it was like, oh, we can't let these goblins overrun everything. But on on Thud Island, where Trastenfin is, nobody knew that was happening, so they didn't stop all those from growing, and then they got to overrun the island. And then they all had to, they basically, they refugeed out because it was like, they are literally destroying everything on the island. Yeah, so they, it's like they've been spreading just all over the place and not really sure exactly how they're getting where they're getting. Right, and then, and then when you found out, like, that you could 
revert their form into people who say they're from a certain year. It's like, what? But you grew yeah. from a sack on a tree, like. Yeah, it's 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 about as deep it's as deep as the ocean, and we're fu- <laughs> and we're seeing that it has there's really no bottom to this so far. All right, well, I guess I'll just wait until you get here. How far are we, are you away? I, I mean, I would give them our general general positions. You know, this is where we've been. This is where we're sailing from. We think it'll take you know an X number of days to arrive. Okay. All right. Sounds good. All right. I don't think he has anything else to say. Okay. And then there was one other thing you wanted to do, right? Yeah, that's definitely the real fun thing. I'm going to attempt to cast because because this was some point of uh, this was like a point of discussion in our last session. I'm going to attempt uh, to cast contact other plane again, and this time I'm going to try to contact the Raven Queen because I think there were some questions we wanted to ask her. Um. Okay. So I gotta. figure out how this works and how it's going to work here. Uh, are you telling everyone that you're doing this before you do it? Uh, yes. So if you all have some questions or something that you think should be... Well, first, I mean, do, we don't know if that's if she's a friendly entity. Right, so we don't want to give anything away. We don't want to give her information that she could use against us until we know what her intentions are. But I mean, I, an obvious question is: we have this entity, Blacksley, here, who says that he works for you. Why is he here? Because we don't know what his quest is, right? He doesn't either. Right. The questions I was going to ask. Uh, that that's that covers a couple of the questions I was going to ask. I was going to ask her, um, did she send Blacksley to us? Do you have a task for him? And then also, is she being held captive or is Lyralak controlling her? And then has control over souls been taken from her? Because that, I think those are the big questions we were going to we were talking. And like, about. Is she aware that uh, Lyralak's um, laboratory was in her in her uh, what is it? Was it her church or her, um, her cathedral? Yeah, yeah, her cathedral. The Cathedral of the Beak. Okay, so, um, but like, don't don't tip off to her that like where we know of the Soul Spire and the lake and everything, because if she's if she's in league with Laralac, we don't want her to know we know their weakness or their source. This, you know what I mean? We don't want them to know that we're going for <laughs> the cause of of their power. Yeah. Now this this reminds me. Uh, didn't there was one other thing about last session, right? Um, Konos, you were given the knowledge of where your patron is, right? Yeah, it was. This is. I think this was a couple of sessions ago. But yeah, it was basically it was at the at the bottom of the threefold lake on the blue right. on the blue and plateau. Yeah, and it's like I had gained essentially I had gained knowledge of where that was. But whenever I tried to, I think this was from I think this was from the last time I tried this. When I tried to write it out, it was just literally just utter gibberish and unrecognizable scrawlings. 
So it's better than a normal drawing I would I personally would be able to make, probably. <laughs> so what we're gonna what we're we gonna ask the book of proof something about if the coral is needs to be returned to the the lake to um to help aid the the reversal of the sinking or something like that? Is that a question we wanted to try to answer? I think we kind of learned that that's just that it essentially it's like almost like we think we thought it was like that would be like putting the plug back into the drain if we did that. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's that's something I would want to I'm going to want to do regardless. Okay. So yeah, if anybody has any other questions uh, or maybe wants to try to talk me out of doing this, now would be the time. Yeah, because remember what happened to him last time, right? Yeah, Konos yeah. doesn't remember. Konos doesn't remember what happens to him. I do, but Konos doesn't. But the rest of you I, probably do. I think it has the potential of getting us some answers. So, is there is there any way? I mean, I don't know if we can mesh them, but is there any way Emerin's uh, zone of truth or whatever can somehow tie in to uh, participate? No, I don't know if it works like that. Hmm. I also don't have it prepared. Um, the thing about so so the the contact other planes though it's happening in Konos's head, oh. right? Like, it's not as if he summons a planar entity or a deity to come down and talk to him that you can see, right? He goes into a sort of trance-like meditative state, and converses with whoever it is he's trying to contact mm. or whoever he ends up contacting. And so um, a zone of truth won't work because he's not having a conversation with another entity out in the open where, like, uh, let me put it this way. Um, his part of the conversation and his conception of the activity is happening in his brain, right? or whatever, but you don't know where the other entity is. So you can't cast a zone of truth to that other place to make sure that entity is not lying. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. So zone of truth doesn't work. But on the other hand, you know, zone of truth, or, um, you know, contact other plane basically is, um, The um, the assumption is, I'll put it that way, the assumption is the DM has to give you an honest answer, right? Because the answer is either yes, no, maybe, it's unclear, mm -hmm. or the DM can provide a phrase uh, if, if, if a one-word answer would be misleading, right? So the implication there is the job of the DM is to give an honest answer to the questions asked, not to mislead on purpose, right? Right, yeah. So there's nothing in here that indicates, you know, um, that the, the, uh, whoever I'm talking to would, would give an unclear or a vague answer. Well, a, a false answer. Right. They might not right. be able to give a full or true answer if they don't know it, but... Okay. Right. Yeah. So I guess well, all that to say... What I said about Zone of Truth is true. You couldn't cast it in this case because it wouldn't apply to something on another plane. But the job of this spell is for the DM to answer the question without lying anyway. So okay. it's yeah. kind of a, it's kind of the same situation. You're 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 kind of in a zone of truth. 
kind of, <laughs> right? So yeah, I mean, you could cast it on Konos if you think he's not gonna, you know, if you think he's not gonna tell you tell you truthfully what he's what he's what he hears, right. but yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't affect the incoming source, right? Is now from what you all told me, apparently the last time I did this, I don't remember any of it, but apparently the last time I tried this, something something went wrong or something weird happened. Is there anything anybody can do to I don't know, maybe help me pull try to pull this off better? Try to pull it off better? Uh, uh I mean I, I I can I can sing you a song of inspiration about a, a young a young man who who needed concentration to to uh, work a a very uh, specific task with high stakes. Okay, uh, listen to this oh. this flutey ballad. <laughs> All right. I can also cast. Um, would like enhance an ability. If you have to make it requires something specific, uh, yeah, it's uh, I have to make an intelligence save. <clears throat> um, yeah, I will cast. Uh, Fox cunning on Konos. Okay, and what does that do for him? Uh, gives him advantage on intelligence checks. Checks or saves? Wait, hold on. Just X out of it, and I need to check that. Uh, checks. Yeah, that won't work. Unfortunate. Okay. Uh, you could bless him, though. Cause doesn't that affect? Yeah, let's do that. <clears throat> that works. Because Actually, remember, because this technically only takes a minute, so. Yeah, that's a D4 for saves. So. Yeah, perfect. Let's cast bless. Okay. Okay. So we've got a bless. We've got an inspiration. What's your inspiration die? Uh, it's a D8. Yeah. D8. So yeah. you're going to get a D4 and D8 added to your. Okay. To your roll. All right. So let's see what this does. I'm using D and D Beyond's dice roller for the first time. Oh, I'm glad you guys gave me those because I'm going to need them. Uh, <laughs> Okay, that brings me up to an eleven so far, and then the <laughs> D eight because I rolled I because I rolled I got eight to start and then plus three from the inspiration. Oh, missed it by one. <laughs> Fourteen. Okay, I needed a fifteen. Okay, so what questions do you want to ask? Are you being held captive? No. Right. Did you know that Lerolac was operating in your sanctuary in the Cathedral of the Beak? That he had a lab there? No. Did you send Blacksley to us? No. Oh. That makes my fourth question moot. Do you still have control over souls? Yes. That's all the questions I'm going to ask. You don't have one more. I I, I wish I could tell you one. <laughs> go ahead. Do you Tom. have? Can I tell? Uh, sure. Yeah. Is Lara Lack your 
your ally or enemy, however you want to phrase it. All right. Are you and Laralac allies? No. Okay. That's all my questions. Okay. Roll me a D100. Oh, no. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Ninety nine. Oh, wow. Man, is that good or bad? <laughs> it's either really good or really yeah, bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> so uh was anybody watching him while while he was doing it? Cleric was there. I figure Blacksley or not Blacksley, actually probably would have been too if <laughs> you're giving me inspiration during this. Gently soothingly playing music in the background. Yeah. Yeah, I would have been watching. I'm not very useful in this case, but still watching. Um, you see Konos fall asleep. Which, that doesn't sound so weird, but you have never seen Konos fall asleep. Konos doesn't sleep. Konos goes into a trance. Konos is an elf. Konos fell asleep. Socks runs over to Konos and sits on his chest. Just like, just like my own cat. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm asleep. <laughs> um, and Konos sleeps and you're worried. It's not normal. How does one wake a sleeping elf? It's never... Konos happens. sleeps for six days. Oh, oh lordy. And when he wakes up, he cannot speak. Uh-oh. So for, for, the, for six days, he's asleep. When he wakes up for four days, he can't speak. When he tries to write messages to you, it's gibberish. It's like the last time he did this and tried to tell you something. And it's obvious it makes perfect sense to him, but... When he shows you the, the piece of parchment that he wrote on, it's chicken scratch and arrows. And then the day before you, you get to Calport, he wakes up or comes out of his trance. Because now he doesn't sleep again after that six days. He comes out of his trance and gets his voice back. Now... Konos, that whole time that you were asleep, Bolem was talking to you. And Bolem told you the history of his entire mortal life. But you can't remember it. But you know that he told you the day before you pull into Calport, you are seemingly back to normal. Okay. That's one scary <laughs> spell, my friend. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you, you know, you think when you make a deal with an all powerful entity for a little sliver of power, they'd give you stuff that isn't harmful to you. And then for the, for, for the four days he's awake but isn't able to communicate, he is absolutely, Konos is absolutely livid about the fact that no one can understand what he is writing. So, 
he is, he is on he is on edge probably as as we're when you when arriving. you look at the they show you the the paper that you the parchment that you wrote on mm-hmm. and now to you it looks like chicken scratch and arrows like it's mm-hmm. obvious that you were livid because you knew exactly what you were saying but mm-hmm. all right <sighs> well I don't I now I definitely am not going to try that again. Because this time, because this time he knows that something went horribly wrong. The last time he didn't, so now it's like, okay, well, we're just gonna, we're just gonna tuck that bit of magic away, and not unless we're desperate. (laughs) Not even then. Um, the other thing is that uh, when Konos was asleep, and then um, not able to communicate. None of you saw Otto. He was just gone. Hmm. He was not around. Out of the pelican? And the and the crow, the crow that rides on his back, gone. Both of them just Can I resummon Otto? He's back now. When you, when the the day when you came out of your trance and you could speak. He was on the windowsill waiting for you. Okay. But oh, we didn't ever whole... see him physically leave or come back. Huh. Or the crow, which, you know, the, the crow is not summoned by Konos, right? The crow is a crow from Darkport yeah. or a think. raven, a raven from Darkport. And uh. Otto is a familiar, so. So, well. If nothing else, we know that the Raven Queen and Larillac aren't allies. But as far as the rest of that goes, it was, it was, it was, it was kind of unpro- it, it was a red herring. Basically, it was a dead end. Well, that's very useful information, though. I mean, uh, she could prove to be a, a powerful ally if we and she's she's uh, in in a realm that you know is, is a real powerful realm that we. We don't. We never encountered though. We don't even know if she's safe or if she's. Well, she said she's not captured, right? You asked her that. Yeah, she, she's she's not being she's not being contr- right. she's not being captured. She's not being held captive. Um, she hasn't lost any of her normal power that we know, would know of. That's not what well, you asked her. Oh, I, I said I, I said you know, <laughs> do you still have con- do you still have control over soul? She said yes. yes. So, yes. so I mean, that, you know. Uh, Maybe who knows? Maybe another trip to uh, Darkport would be in our, useful in our future to actually go meet her and have a conversation. Because at some point, we're going to need to enlist enlist allies, right? I mean, we can't do this alone. This is a pretty monumental enemy we're going up against. I mean, to be fair, I've never heard of gods enlisting as like someone to fight with. But at the very least, maybe some of her priests might sure. be willing to lend a hand. Well, it's in her best interest if she controls souls and Larillac is usurping that power and manipulating it. Yeah. Yeah. And the more allies we can get, the better. I'm just, you know, making sure you understand. We're probably not getting, like... Besides, I point to Blacksley. Black looks good on me. (laughs) (laughs) For all we know, uh, uh, Blacksley is the help Raven Queen (laughs) sent. I mean, well, she didn't. She didn't send him to us. 
So as far as whatever his task is, that's to be seen. Or maybe it's for him to determine. I mean, we're still under the assumption he's benign or friendly, right? But that may not be the case. And he's done nothing so far to make us doubt him. Yeah, but we don't know who whose motive he represents. I think I feel like it should be the Raven Queen, even if she didn't necessarily send him. It does seem like he's here because of her. Like it's her doing that he exists as he is. What he said to you last session was um, he was either really, really good or really, Mm -hmm. really bad. Mm -hmm. And that's why he did not, his soul didn't go to wherever it's supposed to go. Instead, it was put into this form so that he could rise and complete a task. He doesn't know what the task is. So, and then, and then you found out from the book that he was Cornelius Adrum. So, he said, or uh, he didn't say, the conjecture or the assumed state of things was the only being that can create revenants yeah. and cause them to rise and complete a task is the Raven Queen. And you asked her if if she sent him to us, right? Not that she sent him, but sent him to, to specifically to us. Uh, yes. Now refresh my memory. The House of Adrum. What? That's the that's the essentially the cult house, right? Yeah, according to everything. With the eye, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So yeah, not, never, so, not so way back even in the first session when you talked to the lighthouse keeper. He said that the house of Adram is the boogeyman. That's what you tell your children, behave or the house of Adram will come to get you, right? They're going to come do bad things to you. And that, that they are no longer supposedly in existence, but that was, that's why it's a boogeyman, right? But then, which was, but which then you saw the, him the, not being... the signal, right? The symbol on the ship. Yeah. That's, uh-huh. Yeah. Which would lend to him not being a good person, not doing ex- extraordinarily well and good things, but to have to make some kind of penance. Yeah, but either way, if it's good or bad, he's clearly here to do good to like redeem himself or do further good. So either way, it kind of works out for us in terms of can we trust him? Do we want to turn our back and let him do whatever? Probably not. But I don't think we have to worry about him necessarily like working for Laralac. Okay. Okay, so anything else that anybody wants to do before you pull into port and get escorted to the Queen's Palace? I would just ask. I would mention everybody about my conversation with Algret. So, you know, at some point we should try to go to the Ridgeline district. Regret my choices of not pursuing the vengeance I had wanted against a certain shark face. Vengeance you wanted? Yeah. 
we ever decide how to pay the crew? Uh, I think we decided we had the money and it just came out of um, nowhere. No, I think we decided that we were going to have, um, that we had enough like coin, I think, to pay them. And if not, we had the amethysts to liquefy in Calport. Yeah. Yeah, you decided that the, the amethysts that you had could be sold. That's... Could sell them, but did we want to sell them? No, but if we need to. We probably could scrounge up some other items that we could sell, right? Some magic items that have value that if we really needed money. We still had the gunpowder that we never got sold. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I don't know how legal it is to sell gunpowder in Calport. Then I can also pitch in of like the three hundred gold worth of diamond dust, which I would like to keep. But if we needed to throw that in there, we can do that, and that would give us a decent bit without selling the amethyst. We could also try selling the books. I have this in my notes. We found this tucked away in the curiosity. It's a small box filled with jewelry, necklaces with rubies, on- anklet, and sapphires. Oh, okay. okay. We can sell that. I was going to suggest we could try selling the books to the library in Calport as well. That's true. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll make a list of the things we can sell. Maybe not the ones we haven't finished reading, but the more, like, especially if they're, like, old, they might fetch a decent price for the library collection. That way we don't have to sell the amethyst since the amethyst seem to be important. Mm-hmm. The amethyst is the key. You also need to deliver the mail. Remember? Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Assuming any of that is still, you know, hasn't, hasn't gone stale yet. Well, I mean, no one else could make it right. Like that. The whole reason you have that giant bag of mail is that no one else. Mm-hmm. Was going making this way, it yeah. over there, yeah. So. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, you are now in Calport. You know that they caused, or uh, you know, had Shark Face's ship sent over to the quarantined area. You have agreed to follow the rules of the town. Mm-hmm. Um, the rules of the city: no teleportation, no casting in public, no concealed weaponry, no open deity worship, no fighting except where designated and sanctioned. And, you know, Captain Lord Tobik, Baron of Genex, Steward of Well Tusk. Okay, so that's that's your directive. You've agreed to follow those rules. Um, and so I remember Imran tucked her holy symbol into her tunic, and you all have to have your weapons out and visible, um, mm-hmm. and no casting. Uh, and they inform you that... Um, you're having an audience with the queens, Rimethus and Delencia. And you are taken to... So it, it's basically... Uh, I'll describe it for the, for the audience. It is a, a large city. It has a wall around the city with several towers. There's also an inner wall. Um, there are some large buildings. There are several districts. There's a large dock district where uh, basically everyone, of course, has to dock. Um, And then uh, it's on a hill, so the sort of inner wall is up in elevation because there's a ridge 
that runs down basically from north to south, um, runs down almost two thirds the way through the city. Um, the uh, the place where the palace is, that's where you are taken. So basically, you were taken through the the streets, and as you were taken through the streets, the royal guards, uh, the queen's elite guards, are who are escorting you, and um, it's obvious that the populace gives deference to these people and you're not sure if the populace is giving deference because of fear or allegiance or, 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 or just out of, you know, respect. And so there you have it. Uh, and one other thing, all of the Queens elite guards are female. They're all women. Okay. So, uh, and they are wearing what amounts to military uniforms. Um, so, I mean, not like modern military, but basically they are, uh, they have nice armor. It's well polished. They have insignias on the armor, on their pauldrons. Um, a couple of them are wearing helmets. The helmets have, you know, crests and different emblems and designs on them and obviously they also have rapiers um they are obviously um militaristic i'll put it that way um they can fight they're not they have a very rigid bearing and they are you know no small talk right they're they are doing their job and they're going through and they are protective of you so they sort of as you're moving through town, you all can stand next to each other for the most part. They sort of form a half circle in front of you. Um, and then there's a couple of them behind you. Okay. So that you're basically protected from all sides. Not that anybody's threatening you or anything, but they're obviously, you know, you are in their care, <laughs> if that if that makes sense you you are you are their duty right now so they are making sure that you are getting to where they are obligated to take you uh and so they escort you to the palace and um you enter into the palace the palace is um not so the royal hall is um it's a very large building but it is uh not extremely it's not gilded right it's not it's not uh ostentatious or gaudy it doesn't have a lot of obvious riches right there's not a lot of obvious wealth being displayed on the outer wall or on the initial interior areas the only place that you see that so far that you've seen any kind of wealth being shown is with the tapestries that are hanging in the wide halls as you walk down the main hall, just as you come into the Royal hall. And those tapestries depict historical, um, what you assume are members of the Royal family historically, like in the process of being knighted or getting some kind of rank, uh, within the Royal house. Um, they're very colorful and it's really obvious that those tapestries are well-maintained and very, uh, worth a lot of money. Put it that way. You are escorted to a waiting room, and you are 
informed that the queens will see you in when they're ready. <laughs> uh, they don't actually give you a time. They just say, we, we, wait here and we will, we will come and get you when, uh, when the queens are ready. So you've got a few minutes to discuss things if you need to. So I guess we're here under the presumption that Marcel is royalty and we are uh, an entourage. <laughs> so I think the whole way to this point, Marcel is trying his best to look at least regal, like sitting like back straight, like looking up and just like pretending as soon as the guards just leave us, you just, they, they just slump <laughs> into the first chair. It's like, I'm already exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do this. I assume none of you guys want to pretend you're the Royal instead. No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great response. <laughs> Are we supposed to address you, Marcel? Your furriness. <laughs> I will not take that. Um, <laughs> how am I supposed to know? My people don't do royalty. We haven't done royalty for generations. Well, that means you get to start a new tradition. Well, the thing is, it's not like I can go back to my people and be like, my people, I've been recognized as your king. <laughs> and they're going to be like, cool. No. <laughs> At most, they're going to be like, great. So that's, uh, does that mean we get something from you? Like, it's. <laughs> well, I, I assume we don't want to go in and say, hey, whatever you've heard, you know, the people who said it don't really know what they're talking about. <laughs> I mean, it's getting us an audience, right? It's getting us, obviously, respect. Yeah, yeah that's true. The, the, the one of the queens is called Delencia. I'm sure they know some information that could be useful. If we get to ask questions, I don't think now, we're going to be the ones asking questions for a minute. What's the history of Delencia? That's the, the keeper of souls, queen of souls. Yep. She was the wife of the old dwarven king who was uh, responsible for the destruction of the tieflings, I believe. Oh, so she was the wife of a sociopath. Excellent. <laughs> well, now. She's just using the name. I mean, I'm assuming that's what she was named no, no. after that person. So uh, she wasn't the one that was responsible for destroying the tieflings. Uh, no, that was the... That was Ian Tarsus. Thank you. I knew it started with an I. And he uh, was a tyrannical dwarven leader who made some bad decisions that brought shame to his clan. Uh, blah, blah, blah. This is what Olgrat told you, right? Um, and he helped Ioliath's children get rid of the tieflings. Remember, those are the dragonborn in this world, Ioliath's children. Now, they that race redeemed itself because they helped fight one of the demons during the evisceration um, and saved a whole bunch of stuff. Anyway, uh, but basically, the way that Ian Tarsus helped them get rid of the tieflings is he stole Delincia's children. Oh. And she basically vowed revenge apparently on him and and it was such a 
there was such a um it was such a horrible thing to happen and it, and whatever she whatever she did or whatever she became ultimately in dwarven clans even though Ian Tarsus and his entire line is out like they exiled them and they died off uh it's still an old wife you know it's it's still it, so here's here's where the intersection came between the house of adram and the queen of souls because the lighthouse keeper told you that the house of adram you know was a boogeyman in the dwarven clans delincia is the boogeyman because it was don't misbehave or delincia will come and, and get your soul because she wants repayment for her children being taken of which Bolum is her child, right? So, so this could be a grand reunion. Hey, mom, I'm a trident now. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, this queen has probably taken the name from past, past. Just like you know, you have King James the Fifteenth because right. people take the yeah. same names over and over again. It's like the Pope, right? The Pope, Pope takes a papal name, right? That the queen yep. takes a regal name, right? It just so happens right now that Queen Elizabeth, Elizabeth was her name, and it's also the regal name she took. But the normally they take when they are anointed king or queen, they take a regal name, and they're no longer referred to as their actual birth name. That's no mm-hmm. longer like when you're addressing the king or queen, you address them as their regal name because that's the that's the queen or that's the king. Mm-hmm. So her taking Delencia as the name is is a nod to the Delencia of the past. It doesn't... Yeah, we have to use this to our advantage in some way, shape, or form. Well, so she's potentially related to the Trident, at least. Some distant, you know, great-great-great-great-uncle. Possible. So, after about 10 minutes, maybe 15, uh, there is a knock at the door. I straighten. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'll answer it. Uh, standing in front of you is a male human who is wearing um, uh, robes, almost like a um, like a almost like a judge's set of robes, but tied at the waist. So uh, he's not a judge, but kind of that style so he's obviously got a tunic on under it but he has like a robe and it and it has a couple of stripes down it coming from the shoulders down and he he as you open the door he stands up high he says good morn i am major domo justinius i am here to escort the royal entourage to see the queens we are ready I guess. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, how would you like to process in? What does that mean? <laughs> uh, how we enter the chamber. Uh, you should be, I think, last, right? Because we should, we should come out first and form like a procession and line up. Sure, that sounds great. And then you come in. <laughs> That's the coolest way of asking what asking for a marching order I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the major domo is very. I mean, he, his job is to 
to make sure that you are right. Like you, that you are looked after and um, that you're, you know, he, he, he's the chief steward of the house, right? So he's a step above the Butler. So he doesn't, deal with the staff he deals with the guests and making sure the household is perfect for the guests and as royals he wants to make sure everything is perfect so that's his he's he's one of those uh it's like um you know the whole buckingham palace thing where they can't have a facial expression that's him he's like in his he's a, uniform he's a beef eater yeah so he's a beef eater <laughs> except he's not holding a rifle or having a big hairy hat so um he says, very well, follow me. And he takes a couple steps out the door and he looks at one of the elite guards and he says, you will follow the entire group. And they nod. And he goes. Follow. <laughs> he takes you down the hall and then to the left and then to the right. And that hall is much grander and now there are suits of armor all along, but the suits of armors are either made of gold or gilded with gold, so they are extremely shiny, and um, now you're seeing the wealth of what a royal house would have. And he leads you to two doors, and the doors are enormous wooden doors, double doors. They have an arch at the top, and the they're banded, but the bands are silver. Okay, so polished, highly polished silver. And as he starts walking up, two guards, you know, one of them leans in one side, one leans in from the other, and they open the doors. And as the doors open, you hear bugles playing, you know, the the traditional sort of here's the announcement of people coming in and as you enter, you notice that every person in the room, and there's probably 50 people in there, stop whatever they were doing, whatever discussions they were having, and they turn to look and watch you come in. And you're coming into a room, and there are guards about five feet away from each other. So you're basically, they're forming a hallway for you to be shuttled up to a dais where there are two thrones there are people on the out outskirts of where all the guards are standing. There's also, you notice, an enormous ta table on each side of the room that has um, lots of items on it. So part of it has a bunch of food piled up. Part of it has weapons. Part of it has household goods like um, shiny candlesticks all the silver that's polished and they're like it's a display of wealth and power okay it's obvious that that's what it is and um the last 23 and 20 feet in front of the throne there aren't guards there um there are two there are two women sitting one on each throne and behind them there is a person behind each of them and then there are guards lined up in the back there all of these guards that are in this room are um, either similar to the guards that that escorted you all the way to the royal house, which those are those are the queen's elite guards, okay, or they are obviously royal house guards, and some of those are men, but their their insignias are obviously different. They are not the queen's elite guard; they're just royal guards, okay. So there's definitely a difference between 
the Queen's Elite Guards and the Royal Guards. But either way, they're all, right, obviously skilled. They have weapons, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, as you enter and as you reach the point where you will stop, the Major Domo turns and sort of gives you a hand signal to stop. Mm-hmm. And um, he sort of looks over to the side and uh, a younger sort of almost squire looking person. So everyone in this room is well-dressed, right? No one is from the lower class. All of these people are people from the queen's court. Okay. They are, they all have some sort of power in this. This is a traditional sort of monarchic thing here. Okay. The people in this room are the movers and shakers of this area. Okay. So what you're saying is they're all dressed better than us. They're all dressed (laughs) really well. (laughs) Uh, This, this person who steps up is probably the least well-dressed and it's, it's because he's just the herald who is a person who's going to announce better than us. Right. (laughs) He's still dressed better than you, but he's dressed worse than everybody else. So he's the, the worst house on the best street. Right. (laughs) Um, And he, uh, he says, uh, instead of introducing you, he says, uh, I present to thee the Royal Queens, Remethus and Delencia, and every single person in the room, except for the Queen's Elite Guards, bow and okay. stay bowed. Okay. I'll bow. Why not? <laughs> yeah. So. Okay. After you bow, the queens say, you may rest, and everyone stops bowing. One of the queens. The, so let me describe the queens for you. Uh, the queens both look to be about, they're human. They're both human. They look to be probably 35, 40 years old, so they're not super old. Uh, but they were not around before the sinking, because remember, it's been 50 years. So they obviously were born after the sinking. Um, at least based on their looks. Uh, they both are wearing regal gowns, or I should probably say more like a regal cloak almost, because when they move a little bit, you see that they have armor on under it. So they're not they're not sitting there just in fancy clothing. They are sitting there in armor with sort of the this nice purplish almost depending on the way the light hits it it's sort of purple sort of blue um sort of cloak that hangs over they're both wearing crowns the crowns are highly bejeweled (laughs) uh and they both have a scepter at their right hand which they are not holding up but it's on their sort of armrest of the of the thrones and um one of them says Welcome to Calport. Please introduce yourselves. Ah, oh, Grand in, Grand Hall. We come to you on a, in a, on a mission of, of peace. <laughs> I am Axley, <laughs> and these are my companions. This is Emerin, and this is... <laughs> uh, this is Konos, the unknown, the unknowable, <laughs> the great unknowable. Mm-hmm. And finally, let me introduce, and I'll pull out my little flute, and I'll play a little tune that sounds very much like popcorn. 
<laughs> this is the great Majesticus Aquaticus of the, the watery realm, Marcel. Love that. <laughs> Marcel's just like, do you think I could kill him right now? <laughs> <laughs> so you notice the Herald is sort of, you know, not, but trying not to. Uh, um, but the elite guard are just stone Still face. Great. The queens look. Um, they have a uh, they have a softer expression, but they're not quite smiling. So they're you know. <laughs> From where do you hail? Do we have a name for the Hakka uh, Island? I don't think so. I don't think they ever gave us a name. We knew it was the mud. Something tribe, yeah. Mud tribe. I was gonna say mud splatter. <laughs> <laughs> Suppose originally we come from Trast and Fen, though honestly, as sailors, we come from all over. People of the sea, then. Very much so. And uh, well, uh, my name is Marcel Duran, and apparently, I come from a line. Of the last king of the Latrinians. But there's been some embellishment because my people do not really bow to a king anymore. So you you gave up your right to rule. So I come from a royal line, but we yes, you could say that. Our people don't really recognize You abdicated your power. Sure, you can put it that way. It wasn't Why me directly. Why would one do such a thing? I don't know. It wasn't me directly. I. It was far enough back. Our people are very short-lived. Um, so it wasn't. Our people are very short. <laughs> I myself am only twelve years old, so I don't know what happened. Like you know, twenty years ago. Um, but I suppose King. So you did not abdicate. No. I so you not. are trying to regain your power. Uh, well, no. So you want to abdicate. I don't think that's how it works. Well, the Latrinians have a very, we're a free spirited people. We're all over the place. We're very decent. Yes, our people are free as well. Free, free. And uh, everyone, ah, oh, every everyone in the ah, oh, yes, we are free, yes. So every every clan governs themselves. Yes, our people govern themselves, and every oh right. yes, we govern ourselves. And we don't really think royalty is necessary at that point. So you abdicate your power. Sure. I mean, there was no power to abdicate. But you have presented to yourself to us as the royal line. But you have abdicated. It's complicated. And there's things going on in the world out there that are best spoken privately. But you have an entourage. These are my party members, yes. Well, you can't travel alone out there. It's very dangerous. They're my friends. My crew. The queen obviously looks everybody up and down. This is your crew. 
Yes. But you came in on quite a large ship. That is correct. That uh, here's Emerin is our captain, and the rest of the fleet is under. Ah, Thomas's you're a captain. You were not introduced as such. Yeah, someone may have forgotten that part. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's a, it's a long note, a long list. <laughs> Some things fell out. You may have also forgotten about introducing the other um, leader in our group. And I look at Konos. <laughs> you may have been informed that we came in with a fleet. And Konos here is the chieftain of that fleet. Ah, you are a chieftain. I was not informed. Um, the 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 people. Yes, they've. <clears throat> sorry. The the a tribe of yes. There is a tribe of Hoka that that follow me as their leader. Oh, those are the alligator people. Yes, they they recently. But they were not manning your ship. They were manning the other ship. Yes, they were serving as as replacements for for many of the crew on that ship who are no longer for for a crew on that ship who were not able to function because of the illness. Yes. Hmm. To put it quite frankly, they were kind of sort of our prisoners because you know we had them. That's why they they took prisoners. Well, yeah. So you did not abdicate (laughs) power. Well, when you're on the seas and a pirate ship comes up to you, you have two choices. Either let them sink your ship or take them instead. It's, it's, it's a different kind of, it's a naval thing. Hmm. Interesting. So why have you come to us? What is it that you need? Information and perhaps alliances against a great evil who is... You may know or not that is uh, pushing people out of their homes and making them refugees in a world where waters have risen. Konos, at this point, you hear in your head, Mm -hmm. that's not Delencia. I'll think back to it, Bolum. Who is it? Do you know them? That's not my Delincia. I'll think back. I think this might be another instance of you're not sure what time it is or what or when it is. Hmm. Imposter Delincia. <laughs> hmm. I don't really know how I was expecting this to go, but I didn't think it would go this badly this quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm not going to say anything to Lindsay, but I'm just going. I'm just going to start keeping my eye on her and just kind of see how, like, studying her face. She has, see how she's reacting to us or anything like that, or if she's looking at any one of us and with particular attention. Well, so right now you don't even know which one is Delincia because they didn't actually identify themselves as Remethus no. or Delincia. The Herald presented them, but did not say this is Delincia, this is Remethus. He just oh. stated their presence. Your Majesties, there has been little word of Calport for a long time from Trastenfin. This is uh, a fact-finding mission 
as much as it is anything else. Can you please tell us what's transpired here over the the years with with no contact? Have you had contact with other Isles and other peoples? Of course we have. We have had contact with multiple islands around here. And they all have pledged allegiance to us. How, how close are all those islands that you have? Some of them are your... near and some of them are far. How far is the farthest? Hmm. She snaps her fingers and the person that was sort of slightly behind her leans forward and whispers in her ear. And she says, the farthest one is a seven-day sail. Has it always been a seven-day sail? She sort of looks and the guy whispers in her ear, no. When was the last time did you hear from them? Why do you ask? Well, you've clearly received a large number of refugees from Trastenfin already. You have them here in the city somewhere, I presume. You've talked to them, and I'm sure they've told you what befell Trastenfin and why they were fleeing. I have sent representatives to them, and they do not have much to say other than that there were some goblins. Did they mention how long that journey took? No. They said they were trapped in a storm, so uh, obviously any estimate of time traveled is erroneous. Do you count Trastenfin among the islands that have sworn allegiance to you? Of course not. We have not made any overtures to the leadership of Trastenfin or the entire island of Thud. Well, I think you've got most of the people here now, so... Do these stories of blue goblins ring true to you in any way, or are they... Do, they you seem... do, you, do I think they were lying? Of course not. Why would they lie about such a thing? But do you have any experience with, with such things? Have, here, have you had blue goblins reported in Calport? Or any of the surrounding islands? Perhaps. Was it the farther ones or the nearer ones? Perhaps. Are we sensing a pattern? I'm sorry, are you here to interrogate us or ask us for a favor? I suppose we're trying to figure out how much you know about the problem that is happening on the rest of the world. And the fact that perhaps our world is expanding to the, the problems point where... that we have are that refugees keep showing up sick. Yeah, that's related. Have you researched any of the illness? Have you had any luck curing or reducing symptoms? We try to reduce contact. So you just let them die. Our clerics have been dispatched, and there's nothing they can do. Out of character, what char- what did we cast? It was remove curse, and then greater restoration. Uh, greater it was just remove curse, and then I cast it cure wounds. A cure wounds. Okay, so it was remove curse that got rid of it. Okay, I couldn't remember what spell actually worked. Uh, that was only on ones that didn't have symptoms. That was only. And the ones that did have symptoms, we tried, and they died. We also tried lesser and greater. Neither of those worked either. I think the ones that died were the ones who were really, really far yeah. far along and far progressed. Like the ones who were only maybe starting to transform were the ones who could still be, he- be healed. Our chaplains have not been able to 
render services to any of the refugees that come in sick. None of them are able to speak or understand what the chaplains are saying, and none of them uh, vow to to worship the appropriate deities to allow for the healing to take place. Who do you consider the appropriate deities to worship here? Well, of course, our deity, Straven. I wasn't aware deities were that picky with healing. You are not a person of faith, are you? Mm, no. Since the illness apparently comes upon the sea, we request assistance from the sea god in order to help us cure the illness. The god of the harvest is little use for an illness from the sea. The god of the sun is little use for an illness from the sea. The god of the earth is little use for an illness from the sea. The god of the sea is the one who can cure an illness from the sea. Unless it's a curse, in which case you're going about it wrong. Perhaps you would like to speak to my religious advisors. Goddess of Storms had something to say about that, and she cured a couple of them. The Goddess of Storms. Brass. You don't, you don't trust in Straben. Straben's a deity known to me, and I don't distrust Straben, but I don't specifically worship him, no. You are a single god worshipper. You don't pay allegiance to all of the gods. Only the one that's helped me. Hmm. Interesting. And what of the rest of you? Do you worship all the gods? I don't really worship gods. Hmm. You don't you don't believe in the power of the gods? Oh, I believe in the power of the gods. I kind of have to. <laughs> I've seen people use the power of the gods. Mm-hmm. But uh mm, just not my thing, I guess. I believe in fate and fortune, which I think even the gods hold sway to. Hmm. The gods are quite fickle. They determine the fates and the fortunes. That's why we pay allegiance to them. And just like mortal beings, they all have their place. They all have responsibilities, which they cover. Straven's responsibility is the sea. Perhaps you would like to speak to our Abbot. Huberto, go get to Tullus. Two people run off. How many people are in here besides the queens and her interage? Um, There are probably 10 elite guards, probably 15 royal house guards, and then probably 30 or 40 members of the court, plus the two. Um, well, so one of the uh, advisors, the one who was whispering in her ear when she was, when you asked the questions, he ran off. The other one is still be- behind the other queen. Is the great library of Calport still as it, as it has always been rumored in its grandeur? The library of Therondimus is the finest library, the finest collection of items in this part of the world. Maybe in the entire world. Considering most of it's sunk, those things are made of paper? Yeah, probably. Hmm. 
you denigrate the grandness of our library, even if the others hadn't sunk. Oh, no. I just think it's probably the only library. At least of any note. And that is, in fact, one of the reasons we have, we have come here is to, to study and research That's there. One of the last bastions of knowledge on this world. Mm, I see. So you would like permission to enter the library? Yes. Yes. All welcome. Seekers, welcome. Come as you are. Well, only those learned enough to partake of the rich knowledge of the library make use of the library. That's not how it always was. You know of our library? Learned of it. It is the most grand collection of items in all the world. Its reputation is known far and wide as such. Yes. Some enter the library and never come out. It is such a vast, vast place full of knowledge. They never want to leave. So wait, can you eat in the library? Of course. There are various areas supplied with food. Because we know that some get lost in the knowledge. Who's all allowed to enter the library then? Those whom the queens deem worthy. I kind of glance at Konos and go, so do we want to mention the whole, like, uh, I stuff? I'll think back to them, no, I don't think we should bring that up right now. Character question for a hot second. Mm-hmm. Um, the sigil that I saw on the two humans in my dream, like mm-hmm. way back at the beginning. Yeah. I didn't recognize it at that point in time. Correct. Do I know what it is now? Slash would I be able to describe it to the queens? Um would yes. it really matter? I mean, it depends on if you want to describe it to them or not. If you have not seen it on any of the entourage, I'll put it that way. I mean, in other words, it's not like you could look at like one of the guards yeah. or one of the people in the court and go, "That symbol, that's it." Like you don't, you don't see it on any of them. Oh, I, I, I describe it. Okay. I ask, is that a familiar sigil? We have heard of such sigils in certain areas. I'm pulling lore from session three. Mm-hmm. So the um, the symbol had two, it had like two chains linked, like, you know, one chain, one chain, like linked. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had a, a wing behind it. And then it had, um, uh, this is going to sound dumb, but it had uh, like, you know, if you ever look at old comics or something, when when some a superhero hits somebody, it goes pow, and it makes like the yeah, yeah mm-hmm. it's that kind of thing behind it, right? Okay. I call that the it's the ATP symbol. <laughs> it's the bio, biology energy symbol because it all ATP is always made with like the pow thing behind it because it's trying yeah. to show energy, pow, bam. 
Um, so it's that with a wing, and then in front of the wing are two linked chains. Okay. So that's that's the symbol. Okay. And um, she says uh, they have seen that symbol in the library. But it's not something that they have assigned a scholar to or that means anything to Calport. But it is a known symbol. It's it's a it's considered an ancient symbol that you know they don't really like it. It it has not been. Um, she would say it has not been important to the royal houses to investigate it because it is not a symbol of power that is active in the world currently. So we have not assigned anyone to investigate. That's how she would say it. Very proper and. Yeah. Yeah. Your Majesty, are you are you familiar with a subject of yours named Batet of Calport? Oh, Batet. Batet is a very famous Calport poet. Alive? Oh no. <laughs> he died before the sinking. Your Majesty, is, is the name Bolum known in this court? Uh, roll a perception check. <laughs> sure. Everyone. <laughs> <laughs> My passive's an 18, if that counts for anything. I rolled a 1. <laughs> 10. Perception? <laughs> 18. What'd you, what did Karu get? 11. And actually got a... I got a 1. <laughs> Emerin? 18. And Konos, what'd you get? 10. But your passive. As I do most. Yeah. As I do most all. Yeah. Um so you notice that when you said the name Bolum, um, the queens don't react, but a couple of people in the court lean over and sort of talk to each other. Oh, I can read their lips. What are they saying? You the same. They literally. Oh God! Oh, <laughs> well played. <laughs> also, because you know it's not proper to talk, right? In in court, so they're literally like as silent. But you notice it. You see it more than hear it, right? Mm. Uh, kind of out of the corner, and yeah. Um, the queen who has been speaking to you says that is a relatively common name amongst our family line. Is there a Bolum that you are specifically speaking of? Not right now. No. Is there a reason Forgive. to ask? It's a name that we have heard in our travels and came to believe had some significance or some importance here. But if it's a common name, then think nothing of it. A common name in my family line. My grandfather was relatively famous locally. Perhaps those tales got back to you. Even though Traps and Finn does not fly lie in uh, Calport's authority, we do hear ta- quite many tales of of the greatness of the line here. Thank you. We appreciate that. 
Of course. We take great care to maintain the best possible family line. I only have one final question, um, and then we will eat, uh, and then our audience will be over. Uh, would you like to be housed in the Royal Hall during your stay? I mean, suppose if that is something that can be arranged, sure, why not? Of course. We will also assign you an elite guard. They will follow your commands so long as you do not request that they harm any member of the royal household or themselves or any member of the civilian population under their care without provocation. That seems fine. I trust that you have been informed of the rules of Cowport. There shall be no teleportation. There shall be no hidden weapons. You all have your weapons out, I see. Is there anything hidden on you right now? No. No. It is the duty of every royal member that when they see a citizen who is not following these rules, they are to be reported immediately. What happens to those who don't follow the rules? Well, they are taken and retrained. It is important for the peace of society that everyone follows the rules. Therefore, uh, everyone is safe and well. This is the reason why we have quarantined your other people. We do not want our citizens to get sick. We're still not sure if it's that kind of sickness, but I think... I understand the reasoning behind that. Um, I'm curious, though. Yes. Why the teleportation specifically? Calport once resided on a continent that was vast and had many, many teleportation circles interweaving the various kingdoms and localities and duchies. Unfortunately, some of those can be activated from either end. And it is important to be able to maintain the integrity of our current location and our current populace. In other words, we don't want a stranger teleporting in. Well, not so much a stranger. That would probably be okay. But other things could teleport in that we don't want. Dangerous. Dangerous items, yes. And that covers all type of teleportation, even short term. Of course. It's better that way to have a cut and dry rule. Then everyone knows what to follow. There's no there's no room for misconstruing a rule or claiming ignorance of the nuances of a law. But a rule is just a social contract. What what keeps what keeps the dangers you're worried about from doing what they want and still coming in? I'm not sure what you mean. Our teleportation circles are guarded. And no one is allowed to teleport in or out of the city from the city limits. Do you have wards against teleportation? We have people who pay attention because they also want to stay safe. So there's nothing uh, preventing some evil to teleport within the city? I have a very, very very competent security force. I hope that is true. 
It is. Are you worried about a particular evil or danger that is following you? I don't think it's following us. Is this something that me and my people should be worried about? I look at Konos. Yes. Your Majesties, what do you what do you believe caused the sinking? Well, the scholars have not decided unequivocally. There are many, many possibilities. Obviously, there is some arcane element to what happened, and we know that the way that gates and ladders work somehow uh, allowed for an intermixing, perhaps a rift that was unregulated. This, again, is one of the reasons why we have such strict laws about teleportation. Certainly. I knew it was going to be, you were going to tie it to teleportation. (laughs) (laughs) We, in our travels, we've, we've been, and this, again, this is one of the reasons we wish to use the library, is we've been following a theory that it, it may not have been any mere coincidence that the, that caused this thing. You think that somebody may have tried to manipulate it on purpose. So not an accident. This is, of course, only a theory for now. But we wish to learn more to try to prove this. Do you know who? It is not a name I would wish to speak in such a grand grand gathering of people. Hmm. It is a most foul name. A most foul name. Very interesting. Your Majesty, we are only worried that if we speak too freely in the group as big as this, we may incite fear among your people that would only bring chaos. As you say that, the queen who's been silent the whole time goes and claps twice and says, remove. And the elite guard and the royal house guards start ushering everyone out. Of the room, and all the people are like, "What? What?" You know, and they they are shocked that this was uh, turned so quickly. And everyone leaves, and you hear a bunch of doors closing. You hear the people mumbling outside and getting farther and farther away. Most of the royal guard leaves. Two royal guards are next to the two main doors, and then two areas on the right and left. Um, the other elite guards all stay in. So there's ten elite guards, and there are six royal guards still there and then there is uh the two queens the one queen's advisor and right as all of that finished happening the other advisor comes back in huberto which is who she told to go get tullus and huberto is followed by a person who is obviously a religious leader who has you know a basically the vestments of a high level cleric to be mechanical, mm-hmm. right? But the vestments of uh, someone who has reached a high rank in the church, and you know he's wearing like a very extravagant hat. He's got a very extravagant chain on with a holy symbol, um, and he is he's quietly walking behind the advisor. Symbol of Straben. They both come in and they sort of stand behind the, the queen. Yeah, symbol of Straben. Okay, well, that was easier than I thought. Okay, you trust the, the 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 guards that are left, right? Why would I have guards in my presence at all times that I did not trust? Just being thorough. Would you like them to leave as well? Remove! And the royal guards 
and half of the elite guards leave. You trust us that much? That's a yeah, the show of uh, faith. Yeah. Um, I guess we can talk more freely now than Konos. Yeah, I guess I'll keep digging the hole I started here because um, <laughs> that's just what it feels like to be. Um, I appreciate the gesture. The person we have come across that we believe is either connected with this event or is trying to exploit it for their own purposes is someone named Laralak. We have met during our travels. You've met this person. Yes. He fought them. Yeah, my mom. Why would this bring fear to the hearts of my people? One of the things we've seen in our journey was him commanding an army of undead. From the sea. From the sea, the priest said that. From the sea? What is this blasphemy of undead from the sea? I was really excited to talk to another cleric on that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Your Highness, Your Highness, please, I beg. I beg, Your Highness. You brought me here, obviously, because I have knowledge of the ways of Straben. And this is blasphemy. Straben would not allow such vile undoing in his seas, in his domain. Blasphemers. The queen doesn't even acknowledge him. She's just waiting waiting for you to go on. The army looked pretty large, consisting mostly of undead creatures found on the oceans, including sentients. She also seems to make use of a pretty extensive network of teleportation circles. Yes, Hmm. he does. And how do you know all of this? Because we've been the thorn in his side. We've found a couple of his uh, hideouts and. On other islands. On mm. other islands. There's also potentially a bigger threat than Lairlac himself. Oh. After we. He seems to be working for some kind of evil. I guess you could call it a god. Perhaps someone trying to go against the gods that you oh. worship. And who is this? Do we have a name? Don't think we do. We we don't have a name. They've called them. It calls itself. We've heard it referred to as a, as a howler, and it a, looks like a, a name. We've seen it appear. You have a name, Shamasa Hasid. Oh, that's right. right. I did that. All over the place. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> we've heard it referred to as Shamasa Hasid. Is the name? It's like. Takes for itself. We've seen it appear as a very, very large dog-like creature, but we don't know if this is its true form or not. Roll perception. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. Nineteen. That's without my bonuses. Eighteen. Eight again. Twenty-two. We're on edge. <laughs> when you say Shamasa Hasit, the priest goes completely stone still. Just stops moving at all. Like before he was kind of agitated and like, oh, this is blasphemy. And then you say that name and he just goes quiet and still. I keep an eye on him. Side eye. You appear to have heard that name before. (laughs) (laughs) Not getting around the bush. Excuse me. Who is addressing me? I'm a guest of yours or your queen's. 
And you are? My name is Axley. A seeker of knowledge. And you are saying that I am acting out of turn? No. I am being quiet in the presence of my queens. No, you just seem to stiffen when that name was mentioned, as if you've heard it before. Perhaps I have. Well, would you please enlighten me? I, I don't... It is a demon of the old world. Oh, that's. Oh, thank you for sharing. That's uh, something I've never heard before. What is, what is the nature of this demon? Please share the stories. To not know stories, I only know demons. Well, that just makes it worse, I guess, because this demon wants to, you know, mess with the world. What is the nature of this demon? It is a demon. What is the nature of any demon? We're going to play this game, are we? (laughs) I do not play games, small sir. Well, this demon seems to be infecting people with what you call a disease, and I would call a curse. And you're Priests are apparently unable to stop it. The disease that is here is not from a demon. It is from the ocean. Uh-huh. As that why Straven can't heal, heal it? Straven chooses not to heal it because it is of sin. Or maybe because it was the result of a demon? It was the result of vying for things that are not deserved. Like pledging themselves to a demon? They have sullied themselves with a demon. They shall not be healed. (laughs) Perhaps his voice gets a little louder and raised a little bit. We, we we're not trying to cause an argument. We're, we're just trying to learn as much as we can. So we can try to prevent any more catastrophes from happening. The queen turns to the, the priest and says, you can leave us. (laughs) Thank you. Goodbye. Remove. He sort of goes, <clears throat> and he turns and leaves. What was his name? Tullus. Tullus. We are so good at making friends. <laughs> he is a bit agitated because he has not been able to heal any of the refugees. Sometimes people get too lost in their, oh, my God is all powerful, and not realize that, well, there's other things out there quite as much powerful, as powerful as other gods. They can mess with you. We ourselves have spent extensive time trying to do the same thing, find a cure for this ailment, as we've, we've been both besieged by it and running from it for quite some time now. I have friends who have others who need healing. If, if a cure can be discovered, I try, would, would the refugees be freed? As soon as a person is without ills, they can roam the city as they feel free to do. We are a free people. I've heard that only one person among the refugees showed signs of illness, and yet they're all being being kept. At- we do not know if it is contagious. Until they all show no signs, they will not be released. Well, that's my point. I don't think it's contagious because I think it's a curse. But can you guarantee it? Can you guarantee the sun will rise tomorrow? A remove curse spell was able to cure it. Most of it. Most. Most, but not all. Have you heard the name Laralac before? Personally, no. Strange. I think he may have visited your library. Really? Why do you say that? Just the knowledge he has. Hmm. And the books we've found. The books. Oh, you found books. 
you want to donate them or you are returning them because you think they came from our library. You don't know where they came from besides Larilac's li personal libraries, but it would be very interesting to see if they did come from the library itself initially. So let me get this straight. You have intimate knowledge of this supposedly evil person who is raising an army in the undead in the ocean, and you know that it's related to a demon, and you have books from his personal library, and we're supposed to trust you. <laughs> and you want us to set free the people that came from your home island, who are obviously ill, to run free in our free city. Hold up. Only one of the people from that island was supposedly sick. The entire crew has been on a ship with that sick person. How do we know that they are how not carrying that illness have, around, just ready to pass it to someone else? How long have you kept them in, under supervision? Since they got here. Which was... Several days ago. Have any of them shown any symptoms? I do not know. I would have to ask. I will ask my steward. Have you... Has this illness been seen on Calport before, before this time? Before now? Do you know, what do you know about Nothing. it? So this was the first. You case. mentioned, but you mentioned you are familiar with blue goblins. You have knowledge of them. But we know that they exist. Have they plagued your lungs for many years? No. I know it's weird. We're asking you didn't a lot of my questions, question. but the why are we supposed to trust you? I don't know. Would we be telling you all of this evidence of a sinister plan if we were part of it? It could be a lie. It could be part of the plan itself. You yourselves have said you have intimate knowledge from this evildoer. Yeah, that's fine. And you brought, you brought ships to, to our shores that have sick people. One ship. Which we captured. Which belonged to the black back... But the other ship came from your lands. Right. But the one person that was sick was also captured from the Larilax people. But you've given me no reason to believe you. No. What would it take for you to believe us? To convince you. I don't know. I have no reason to not believe you either. There is more risk in not believing us. Hmm. Well, I haven't seen your behavior for very long. I've only seen you for a few minutes. That's true. And we've asked well, a lot of questions. To, yeah, and we're here to bring you a warning. I, mean, I It's on you whether you put any faith in it at all. But if not, then just be aware of it. I think the point here is we felt compelled to give you this information because you are in charge of, of many, of a large group of people who depend on you for their security. We do not really expect much in return besides access to the library so we can continue our own studies. Much of what we've said is theory at this point. We are trying to figure things out ourselves. We can't promise that what we're saying is the absolute truth because we don't know what the absolute truth is. And we'd be fools to think that, that what we know is actually the truth. It's just what we've learned on our trip to Calport. And reverse the perspective. From our standpoint, if you take on uh, the, if you assume that what we're saying is true, we are taking a large risk 
in telling you this information, not knowing the nature of how widespread the threat is and who is in league with it. So we've also. So what do you need? What do you need from us? Access to the library. That is all we ask. What you do with the rest of the information is up to you. And we'll share with you whatever we find in our search for knowledge in the library pertaining to this, this evil. Anything that can, anything we find that can make Calfort safer, we'll gladly share. Very well. The elite guard will know that you have access to the library. Great. You will be given accommodations. The major domo will tell you where your rooms are. You are free to come and go. As for those under quarantine, all we ask is that they be treated well until they are safe to leave. You have my word. They are, after all, our people. Of course. And one other thing. Uh, days ago on our journey, we were attacked by storm wyverns from the mm -hmm. sky that came from this direction. And as we know from lore and geography, Calport used to coexist with storm wyverns on your shores? I wouldn't say coexist. I would say that they they did live in the mountains surrounding the lake. We do have experience with them, yes. Have there been any sightings of them recently? There are always sightings of them. Several, actually. But no undue attacks. Well, depends on your definition of undue. I mean, more than normal? Well, normal is a difficult <laughs> word to explain in this region. Um, a, uh, how much do you know about the Storm Wyverns? Well, the ones we encountered were also accompanied by a strange creature we had never seen before, and I'll describe what it looks like. We don't know those, but the wyverns used to be called Calport wyverns. And they actually protected us from dragons. They're mortal enemies with certain types of dragons. And, well, that stopped a long time ago, and including after the sinking. But there are several storm wyverns in the area. But usually they only come out to still protect us. And unfortunately, I have to admit that lately, there has been a dragon around. We're not proud of this. In the olden days, we would have had a competition and had it slain by now. But for several months, we've been plagued by, perhaps that's the wrong choice of words, we have been harassed by a dragon. Hmm. that keeps demanding tribute, and occasionally the Storm Wyverns show up to help us. The ones we saw were young and foolish. And very wild. Yes, the young ones are very um, impetuous, and uh, if they mate, they do not leave each other. Well, it was a pair... And unfortunately, we mm. couldn't get them to leave, so we had to put them down. Ah, that's too bad. 
Luckily, they have a lot of offspring, so... Yeah, it still felt bad. Apparently, a tiny Lutrinian is not intimidating enough for big wyverns. (laughs) (laughs) They don't intimidate easily. (laughs) Yeah, noticed. (laughs) What kind of dragon is it? is one like I've never seen before. It has red and green scales. <laughs> I just look at Konos. This better not be because of L- Laralac again. I swear to God, if every problem is <laughs> linked back to Laralac. And is the dragon still threatening the city? Or are the wyverns still keeping it at bay? Uh, yes and yes. When was the last time it was sighted? Two weeks ago. Do you know where he's laired? Yes, south of the city. Was there anything important south of the city before he laired there? Like, any location he chose? Ah, well, there were... Please tell. In the olden times, there was a, a mountain range. Now it's just a couple of mountains, but it was an entire range before, and there were several things there. Please tell me there was no teleportation circles there. My life, I don't know the answer to that. There was a, uh, there was a dwarven hold. It was called Kotuk. So it's just a mountain range. There's no, like, dormant volcano or glacier. Well, I'm not really sure. I mean, I suppose. Uh, Okay. I, I mean, in the ancient times, there were no volcanoes on that ridge. But it's possible i suppose there's one now i'm not i don't don't really know i mean i suppose i should send some people to investigate but we haven't been able to get close enough why not because of the dragon itself yes he's patrolling the land then of course well makes sense Lots of problems. Well, I suppose one dragon is better than an army of undead, but at least Calport has a decent amount of clerics to deal with those. Should that come to pass. Well, well, I hate to say that that we can't deal with the dragon ourselves. But it would be nice to have some help. I'll put it that way. Well, I don't know if I can speak for the rest of the party, but we are kind of low on funds. Well, you're going to spend some time in the library. Perhaps when you're done there, you will come back and and perhaps we can talk about working together to get rid of a mutual enemy. More than one mutual enemies, maybe. Sure. 
might be a way to that we can both build more trust with each other. I agree. Sounds great. We've got a plan then. Excellent. Most excellent. So the question is, is there anything you want to do before the session ends specifically? Uh, Emmerin's booking it to the library. Okay. She's booking it to the library. <laughs> 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 uh, lol. Well, that's a dad. That's a dad pun if I ever heard one. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm I'm dragging myself there. <laughs> Not this. Um, Wait for this. Okay. So the library, uh, your your elite guard that has been assigned to you, uh, can take you to the library. On the way there, I snag an amethyst. Uh, from where? What do you mean? Uh, I mean, just pick one up off the ship to make sure I have oh, one. Okay, yeah. Okay. When you get to the library, it's four hundred feet by three hundred feet. It's a humongous building by the standards of anything. And it's about 40 feet tall. And it's completely made of stone on the outside. And as you get closer and closer, it just sort of looms really large and looks just so humongous to you. It almost looks like it's impossibly large in terms of a structure. Um by the way, you see lots of people walking around in the town, and people seem to be, you know, fairly happy and whatnot. Um, Imran, you recognize the main entrance. There are uh, two humongous wooden doors. Each of them is uh, looks to be hewn from a single giant tree. There's a carving of uh, a roll of parchment. That's half unrolled, and uh, on that parchment, the part that's unrolled, it says, all seekers welcome, and then on the next line, it says, come as you are, and if you walk into it, Imran, it looks exactly like it did in your dream. There is a huge grand entryway, a large stone reception desk. There's a wall featuring a nice bass relief of hooded figures uh, reading and writing. There's a stone statue that stands behind the desk. It's pointing at a book laid out on the desk. The elite guard do not follow you in. They just open the door for you. Oh, not readers? <laughs> We're not allowed inside. Yes. Out of curiosity, I'm going to look at that book on the desk mm-hmm. through the pages and see if I see entry. There's only one page. It's blank. It's pretty obvious that the other pages have been removed. What purpose does that serve? Is there a pen nearby it? Mm-hmm. There's a quill and right. a pot of ink. Yeah, I write trust the daughter of Goras. The first entry. The two doors behind the statue shift back and slide open. 
just like in your vision. This is like uh, really, really like surreal. Just as a player, it's like familiar. It's deja vu, and it's really creeping me out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so then we'll end there, but let me describe for you uh, the room that you enter or that you see. Be- you don't even have to enter it. You, what you see beyond that room as those doors open, they slide back. You see a smallish room. It's probably 30 by 30. It's lit with candles. There are stone benches along each wall, and there's an ornate podium uh, in the southeast corner. There is a brass bell sitting on it, and there's a book sitting on it. Otherwise, the whole place is made of stone, just like in your vision. Um, there are, however, uh, exits out. If you So if you were to walk into this room, the two doors will close behind you, and there are um, uh, so there's those two doors. There's a door on the east, a door on the west, and there is uh, a door on the south. There's also um, entryways that don't have doors, so just passageways out of the room in all directions. And you could see, if you look through those passageways, giant bookcases just filled to the brim with books. So let's end there. Nina, did you is that did you keep those notes all the way from like that early early session that had that specific thing in it? Really? Wow, that's impressive. Um, nice. It, nice. It, I passage that Sam read with like two huge wooden doors. I have it all written down, and I was reading it, really? and I was like, "Oh my god, wow. this is like session two. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing! What a what a callback! It actually like sent a chill down my spine. I was like, "Oh my yeah. god, this is weird." Both of you guys, that's incredibly impressive. Oh, <laughs> Not as impressive for me. I have it written. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that session, I was reading it because I wrote it uh, before the session. Uh, um, so, so for the audience, then, let me read it so that we can, so that you don't have to go back and listen to episode two. But, but still do. Yeah, yeah. But, but you can if you want. Uh, so here's the thing that happens. Uh, this is what Imran feels and sees as she's having this this dream. Okay. Uh, you're flying over a great expanse of water. You have a feeling of freedom and joy. Soon you see land in the distance. You come to a city bustling with activity. You fly around and observe many typical activities. Some people are haggling in a large open-air market. There are awnings flapping in the breeze and agreeable prices reached. The temple bells are ringing in the distance. There's a busy tavern filled with laughter. Soon you fly toward a large domed building. It's the largest building you've ever seen. Its walls are made of stone and covered in intricate carvings of ships, waves, and the sigil of Straven. You find yourself standing in front of the main entrance. There are two humongous wooden doors, each hand-hewn from a single giant mangrove trunk. On the front is a carving of a roll of parchment, half unrolled, with the following words in two lines. All seekers are welcome, and below that, come as you are. You can't even remember landing on the ground, but you now find yourself walking towards the doors, which open as you approach. The entryway is grand, with a large stone reception desk a few feet from the entrance. Behind the desk is a wall featuring a bas-relief of hooded figures reading and writing. A stone statue stands behind the desk, pointing at the book laid out upon it. The book contains the rules of the Library of the Grey Towers. Number one, no item is to be removed from the premises. Number two, 
copies can be made manually with your own parchment or services can be provided. Number three, if you need help, just call on Tavros. Number four, please sign to the right. And as you look to the right, another book is there and you see that a name is being written on the page, but no quill or hand or person can be seen. The name reads, Trusted Daughter of Goros. After the name finishes being scrawled in the book, the walls behind the desk slide back and to the sides, revealing a library beyond. Inside the building is lined floor to ceiling with shelves of books, scrolls, and parchments. Between every set of two bookcases are large wooden tables containing quills and sheets of parchment. The library is vast, and you feel as if you're in a maze. But your feet are carrying you forward, and you make decisive turns at every intersection or passageway. You walk for what seems like hours, your steps echoing off the walls, the only sound you hear. Eventually, you come to a door with a sigil etched into the middle of it. The sigil has a gap in it, and you remove a small piece of crystal from your bag and place it in the gap. The sigil glows with blue light, and the door swings open. As you enter the small room, you see a small purple reptile skittering away and hiding in the darkness. In the middle of the room is a pedestal with a book on top. The book has a blue leather cover and reads The Book of Proofs. Just as you reach for the book, you hear voices behind you. And then she was chased. She was attacked and chased by two people, two humans, that were talking about, the boss said, get her. We got to you know, get the book. She threatened to burn the book. They said, now you don't want to do that. They chase her. She's running and running and running. She loses her vision. She was she was felt like she had been guided by Goros the entire time up until then. And then she lost her way, couldn't find her way out, finally sees the opening of daylight in you know in the distance ahead of her. She keeps running from these she can hear these people behind her. And suddenly there's an earthquake. People grab her. She falls down, and as she looks over, she sees there's a brazier that is ref- has a reflection, but the reflection isn't Imarin. The reflection is her mother. That was session two or three or whatever session that was (laughs) way back when. So now you're in the library. You just went into the lobby. You signed in as the trusted daughter of Goros. And you're all standing. Like the end can change. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you already have the book of proofs, right? No, so, that's the that's what I'm yeah. so confused. Also, so, so excited. Doesn't have, doesn't have a blue cover. Yeah. No, yeah. it has a skin cover. Yeah. So we're gonna stop there. It's it's seen some things. The book appears. Yeah, that's that, that book's been through some, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do we want to do a quick debrief? Yeah. Uh, do you have a Do you have a loaded topic that you want to <laughs> address? What I have is. Uh, I, I was just, I, I was, I'm curious actually about something. And that is that, um, you know, we talked a lot last time about how uh, there's just a lot of information. And so the question that I have is actually, you know, are you overwhelmed? <laughs> right. Because here's the thing, right? So in our normal, in real life lives right now, there is so much stuff going on. And you know, gaming for me is a chance to escape. And, yeah. you know, being able to prep my games and run my games and read fantasy stuff. And, you know, this is why fantasy is my go-to genre more so than like sci-fi or or post-apocalyptic or anything like that. Because in fantasy, it's purely like this is not real, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, and it's so vastly different from the real life situations I deal with on a daily basis. So, uh, so here's, here's why I say this, because everything that is around us right now is the pandemic, the rioting, political issues, leadership issues with our respective countries and, and countries of origin and states of origin and all of those things. It's a huge mental burden, even if we are not personally out in, in the front lines, so to speak, or even if our jobs don't directly touch those things, it's an enormous mental burden and an emotional burden to have all of this sort of existential things coming at us that affect us in different ways and to different extents and all that stuff. And I want to recognize those things, but, you know, part of gaming is the escapism for me. Mm-hmm. And um, so the question is, is having so much like mystery, weird, clue-filled stuff, is it a problem? Is, is it adding to the, to the issues or does it actually give you enough to think about that, that it actually alleviates the real life issues? Like, I just want to know what your perspective is on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I like it. I, I mean, for me, my, my home remodel has slowed down a little bit. So I've actually found myself doing more gaming uh, in the past month or so than I normally do, which um, I, I think probably there's a, a draw for me to want to do that for the escapism and also probably the companionship that comes along with it, you know, the company, because the isolation is difficult. So that helps a lot. I think that aspect of it, um, but it's a totally, that, it, it doesn't give me stress, the gaming. In fact, it's, it, it is kind of a nice escape and I, and I look forward to it. I look forward to interacting with, with all you fine folks because I, I enjoy your company. So it's kind of like a twofold uh you know, escape from the constant stress of just the environment and what's going on all the time. I 100% agree with that. Um, for me, it's like two different things, right? Like the fantasy world and the world we live in. So it's hard to pick up like everything that's going on, just all the burdens, everything that's happening. And so you just got to put it down. And looking at all of this information that we have is something that, like, when my mind is racing at night and I can't fall asleep, I'll pick up my D&D notes and I'll look at it and I'll just be like, you know, what's going on? What are we doing? What's happening? And, like, that'll yeah. help me fall asleep. It's yeah, a good coping strategy for people. And that's why I Definitely. think there is a lot of value in D&D and video games. I think it, I think it has more value to have more than just the battles because, like, I... Because I DM a lot too, but like the the thing I, I've noticed is that I see myself using D and D sessions and what has happened and what people think about those sessions to do exactly that. Like if I see someone struggling in the moment and I want to change the subject, it's like so. So what about that session, right? And <laughs> and having more than just the you know, for example, battles happening means you have more things to talk about that will just disconnect your mind for a bit of everything that's happening in the world around you that is stressing you out. 
that theory crafting that like, well, what if this and, and that, that link I made last session uh, to, to the, the souls and everything. And what if we're reborn souls of this and, and all that kind of gives more conversation, even to someone who's not in the game, because like I, I usually do that with my girlfriend at home and when we're having dinner and we'll talk about that after the session. And I think that's a good thing. I think being able to have all those like nuanced like things that you're not quite sure what's going on and, and being able to talk about that kind of gives more meat to like that ability to disconnect even out of session. Because or else it's just during the session, right? So you had a great session and you killed a bunch of monsters and you did a lot of dungeon delving. But then after the session, besides repeating again what just happened, that's it. That's all the disconnect you had, those four hours of gameplay. Versus here, you've got the four hours or three hours of gameplay or whatever. Plus, however long you want to like think over what happened during the session and what that means for the future sessions. Yeah, like when, like I was saying, like you know, there's like when it's just you know simple mechanical gameplay, you know, it's 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 like you know it really tends doesn't always go. It just that kind of just you know only has value if, like for the for the time you're doing that session, whether it's four hours or two hours or whatever. But I mean, like some of the time, some of the some of the games that have stuck with me the most are ones you know that my husband DMs for me, and we just you know we have like these incredible role playing moments where you know he's DMing, I'm playing whatever character I'm playing and something happens and like, oh yeah, yeah you, you know, there was a session about maybe two months ago where it's like, yeah, there was just a confluence of things that just literally just broke me emotionally, but it was like in a, in a good way. Like I wasn't like a huddling, you know, curling in the corner, like not able to function. No, that was actually, that was really good. I, I would even almost call it therapeutic. Uh, for for whatever reason, just to, like people able to, like you, you get lost in that moment and then you realize, wow, I did not realize I would react have such a strong reaction to something going on in a game yeah. uh, but when you're yeah when you're that deep into role playing it's it's it, it, it's it can happen and it's uh, and it's very rewarding when it does mm-hmm. absolutely I I, and i think and i think a big part of nina's course of study is you know role playing as a, a source of therapy and because you know this this is a very very isolating and isolation is depressing and depression is hard it, it makes you want to withdraw. So I, I found the biggest challenge yeah. for me is with the weight of all this going on. I have my, my gaming sessions. It's kind of like knowing, you know, there's an impending party you've been invited to and just the idea of getting out of the house and going to the party is so daunting. And you're like, Oh God, don't do I really want to go and I cancel. But then when you get yourself there, you're so glad you, you went and everything's you know, alleviated and you're, you're in a totally different frame of mind. That's what, that's what these gaming sessions have been like. So I, I know there's that curtain I have to push through because I know on the other side of it, I'll be very happy that I did. And it's a positive thing. Yeah. Well, good. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Cause I, I don't know. It, it, you're right. It's very therapeutic. It's therapeutic for me. It gives me not only the joy of the game and all that, but just something to do. Right. Like, um, not that I don't have a ton to do around the house, but you know, there's only so much, there's only so many dishes you can do. Right. <laughs> um, it's a great feeling to have clean dishes, but oh, yeah. you know, it, it's, you know, like, it feels like um, to have something that sort of set aside and is different from regular life just feels really good. And, you know, so I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad that uh, it's, it's that way for you as well. So, okay, good. Uh, Does anybody else have a topic that, that they want to discuss before we actually start gaming or anything that's 
a question that is needed to be answered or anything like that? I have a possible topic. I don't know how long it would take, but it's kind of something that's come up recently for me. And it has two sides to it. And this is purely going back to mechanical stuff. But it's the topic of long rests and the adventuring day. And maybe short rests. Mm. I think that it what sparked it was a conversation about coffee locks and the new variants that I'm not going to mention. Um, but it also came up because in my last game, my my group went through a battle that was so grueling that after that one battle, even though they had just woken up from a long rest, they wanted to take another long rest. And by rules, it mm. basically you can't take a long rest until. 24 hours have passed so they were like well we'll just do town downtime until we can take the long rest because we are completely exhausted and how to deal with that in situations where downtime isn't exactly possible or should be possible because you're in a like uh, hostile environment and then the upside of that or like the the flip coin of that is when you have extended days of travel for example where you have maybe one battle every two days so it becomes how do you balance that with the fact that they everyone knows they're going to be able to long rest at some point without anything else happening so they can they are much more powerful because they have everything refreshed and know that everything's going to be refreshed which is kind of something that happens in our game right because our game is that situation where we have a few battles here and there, but it never pushes us to the extreme. So we can fully like unload everything we have that we've been itching to use because it's going to be the only battle probably in the day. And then we know we're going to get a long rest eventually. And, and how to deal that with both. Like how, how do you see it as a player and how do you do that as a DM to balance both both sides of that like long rest problem. So you know what? This is a problem in every edition. It's called the five minute mm-hmm. work day. Yep. Uh-huh. And mm-hmm. it's the idea that, um, you know, rules, the, the, the game is written in a way that implies or expects the party to have, you know, two to three encounters and then a short rest and then two to three encounters, right? Battles, battle type encounters, or even a social encounter that expended some resources. So I should say two to three resource draining events, then a short rest and then two to three resource draining events and then a short rest and then, or, or maybe a long rest. And and so the idea of if you if you have a, a battle or an event that drains resources to the extent that the party feels like they would be useless if another event occurs, they want to rest. That is a common thing. It's it's one of the reasons why. So this is sort of tangential, but uh, one of the other conversations that I have a lot is about how the encounter building rules for for the DM in the Dungeon Master's Guide and in Xanathar's Guide, uh, they don't really work, right? Like, the, like oftentimes, deadly encounters or encounters that are said to be deadly based on those rules are a walk in the park for certain certain groups, right? And there's three, three right. reasons for that. The first one is uh, a revelation that Dan Dillon basically made me have based on a Twitter conversation yesterday, which is um, that... Uh, 
the rules are written so that there is no expectation of any magical items. So when you have a party with magical items, you immediately now have thrown that encounter rating system out. Like it th- doesn't match exactly. That's yeah. one thing. The second thing is rests. Mm-hmm. That, inc- that, that CR being deadly or that amount of experience of, of monsters being deadly is supposed to be it well if that's the second or third encounter it might be deadly but if it's only the ever encounter that you have and everybody's got full power and every time you have an encounter everybody has full power well of course that's Mm -hmm. never going to be deadly because you never used up resources before you got there you always had full resources when you got there um and the third the third thing that changes that is just the party composition how many and and how good people are at 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 using all of their abilities right so so those three things make it so that those cr tables don't work but the biggest one is that idea of the 5 minute workday that if every time you have a fight everybody is able to expend every single resource that they have well what do you do for the rest of the day then um so I just talked a lot. So I'll let other people answer before we come back around and I give my answer. <laughs> I've got a situation that I think kind of similar to what Cara is doing in my in my home game, where I literally I play a party of four characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <laughs> that that can be fun managing all that. But yeah, uh, it can be it can be a lot of fun, but it can also be a lot of just a whole lot of juggling. And I'm like, I need more arms. Um, keeping track of like what four different completely different characters can do as far as abilities spells and the big thing that always is a sticking point for me is resource management like because when my husband who dms he'll if he puts together like a, a big dungeon crawl i am i always I, I without fail will fall into the trap of you know use like everything in the first one or two encounters uh and then like, okay great that that's that that's that's great okay you use like half your spells and now you're 100 feet into the dungeon there's still five miles to go now what are you gonna? Oh, and the whole dungeon now. Like, like this is the situation I'm in now. Uh, I'm. We are in the city of Brass at eighth level. Ouch. Uh, yeah, we are. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. I'm. I am. I am. The mission on paper was to infiltrate an Afridi palace to rescue a, another party member who had been essentially been kidnapped by a devil. Um, and so that, and it, it went, and it's one of those things where it went south right off the gap, right off the right off the bat, from my perspective, because you know we were, I'm trying to be sneaky, and you know, I, I tried to talk my way in, and that didn't go out, go, that didn't go, it didn't go great, but it didn't like immediately push the alarm button. So okay, well I'm gonna I'm just gonna take a stroll and see if I can try to try to find an open window. Essentially, um, found an open window, but got got seen in the middle of of, of sneaking in combat breaks out but you know there's there's one survivor and that one survivor is now running to tell the rest of the dungeon so this turn just turns into me running after that survivor to keep them from telling the rest of the dungeon and in the process having another encounter <laughs> in which one survivor gets away so i'm chasing them down and, and it, it's dominoes tipping over mm-hmm. so and the whole process I mean, I'm, I'm using up resources um i'm not getting anywhere actually closer to my actual goal and I'm like, okay, well, now, like, basically, like, how am I supposed to, the the ultimate question is, how as a player do you avoid when you're in a situation, like, when you're in a dungeon, and you need to take a long rest, or even a short rest, and you really can't, because it's not feasible to, because there's either nowhere to hide, or the dungeon is just on on too high of an alert to be able to practically do that. 
Obviously, the answer is don't get yourself into that situation in the first place. And I actually have a plan for, for how you're going to go about that, which I never do. Um, I'm infamous for just winging it, essentially. Um, yeah, that's the dilemma I'm in now. So I'm definitely in the fight of myself with that five-minute work, five workday problem. Nina, David. <laughs> it's funny that this came up because this actually happened yesterday with the campaign that I'm DMing. Um, like a random encounter while they were traveling and they all just like destroyed everything. And it's been a little combat has been a little weird because there are also like a really roleplay heavy group. So like we haven't had a whole lot of combat encounters. Um, and we also have a character that's like coming in and out of the depending on when he can be free um but yeah they just decimated everything and i was like all right cool um and it didn't really cross my mind that that's like what was happening is that like they had all their resources and like throwing one encounter at them at a day in a day is not going to expend their resources so they don't they can just throw everything at it because they know they're going to be taking a long rest here shortly yeah that's I feel like that is really difficult to balance. It never really crossed my mind until now, but that heavily depends on who you're playing with, I think, also. Mm -hmm. um, because there are people like Matt that don't really have a plan and will expend everything all at once. And then there are people, a couple of my players, just like reserve everything until the very end and then all hell. Mm -hmm. um, but Ah, that's an interesting conundrum. Well, I've had kind of an interesting revelation with D&D, &D, which kind of ties into this, which is, just to say it bluntly, I think I've kind of fallen out of love with D&D, &D, which is, I think, nostalgically, I remember playing in high school, and I was a different gamer back then to me i was a power gamer we because it was the, the yeah well so that was the fun right getting the best magic item with the powers to try out and the coolest spells and you know the neatest abilities and i, I now i find at this stage in life that doesn't appeal to me in fact it kind of I don't like power gaming. I, I like being resource taxed. I like the challenge of uh, having to work your, your way through a scenario with limited resources and thinking it through and being creative and uh, critical thinking. And to me, I mean, this and this game, not I'm not um, including this game in this because this game is ex exceptional based on my experience playing other games with other other DMs, which in those circumstances, they just they, they seem to be more power gamey in the sense that it's just about overwhelming an encounter and i just found i didn't enjoy that i didn't like it when my character leveled up because i didn't like getting handed more and more magical solutions to things um, i liked it when i was low level and i had to think through a count encounter because it was there's higher stakes it was more deadly there was less i could do it was more reliant on me to think my way through it and so i think that's why i find myself gravitate towards games like Call of Cthulhu, which aren't magic-y, and you don't have a whole lot of gimmicks. Um, it's more just problem-solving. Um, and I say this game an exception in that this game, the story has been exceptional, and to me, that that's the allure. I mean, I, I so it's got everything I, I desire in that. I just worry that I won't be able to find that or replicate it in other D&D games, and I'm gonna, you set me up to be disappointed now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry about that. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I, 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 over the years, I come to realize that there are multiple different styles of play. And I don't mean this in, in the gamey way where, you know, you, you often will see things about what kind of role player are you? And, and, you know, and, and they basically split them into, are you the actor? Are you the, the, you know, the, the person who loves rolling dice? Are you the combat superiority person? Like, like, like those are whatever, like, that's fine. But what I mean is I think there's people there are people who desire very different things out of the game. And it's not really about how they play their character, which is what those types of surveys and whatnot always make me feel like, oh, it's about how you're playing your character. But what I'm talking about is how you approach the game and how you, how, what you desire to get out of the gaming experience. And I think there's a wide variety of, of differences between what people want out of their games. And some people are sort of evenly dispersed, right? I mean, this is why I think D&D tried to have this, this three pillars idea, right? Where, oh, a, one of the pillars is combat and one is social things and one is exploration because I think they wanted to gather people to the game that, that want all of those things in different percentages. And that they can, the D and D actually can fulfill that. And I don't, I I don't know that it can. Um, that's not a knock on D and D. It's just that it's a particular type of game. And I don't know that. Um, uh, let me put it this way: It's not about the game. It's about the group of people, right? If you're in a party where people really favor social encounters then you're going to have a lot of social encounters in your game. And that's not about the rules. It's about the fact that the people want that. And if you are in a game with a, a lot of combat, one or two combats every session, and everybody's enjoying it, that's awesome. I'm, I'm not knocking any of these, but that that's a different type of game than uh, somebody who wants a lot of exploration or somebody who wants a lot of social. So sometimes you get in a group and it doesn't match what you actually want out of the game. And that's that's almost independent of game system, although not quite, right? I, I hesitate to say system doesn't matter because I, I don't actually believe that. I, I, I think that system matters a lot. And D&D &D is a particular type of game. Just when you compare D&D &D and Call of Cthulhu, for example, you get two different mindsets in the game. And you really see that the most when somebody comes to Call of Cthulhu and wants to play Call of Cthulhu like it's D&D, &D, right? And then the game doesn't work unless everybody at the table has agreed they're going to play a pulpy combat field session of Call of Cthulhu, right? But if you're playing a heavy investigation Call of Cthulhu and three of the players are D&D &D combat, I'm going to whoop Cthulhu's ass, right? Like no, you're, you're, you're going to have a major problem, but it's going to feel, it doesn't even matter whether they do or don't. It's the feel of that session is going to be so different that mm -hmm it's it's going to be a different experience for people and right i don't know i've played a lot of different games and i i know that D, D is the 800 pound gorilla there are a lot of things i don't like about D, &D and I, I there's a lot of things that i could say about every single edition even the ones i favor I, there's a lot i don't like about them but that's because it's a certain type of game and unfortunately because it's the 800 pound gorilla it's really really easy to find D, D players and not easy to find players often that want to play something else especially for the long haul like mouse guard look you tell people you're playing anthropomorphic mice and they're like you know what do i want to play a little mouse for let's play D, &D. 
right? Or yeah. or or you mm-hmm. want to play Call of Cthulhu? Half the people that know Call of Cthulhu even exists say, "Oh, I don't want to play that." You're depressed and you spiral into going insane and you die every game. And like that's not true. It's partly true, but it's not true, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying, though. But it's I think you're so also fighting you get, against the whole familiarity slash invest time investment. You've already invested so much in D and D. You already know the rule set. Right. It's cool. familiar, so you can just get straight yeah. to like mm-hmm. planning your session. Whereas trying yep. something new is like, okay, this seems like this 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 system might work better for what the story I'm trying to take. But now I'm going to have to spend a week reading 300 pages worth of text mm-hmm. and then teaching a bunch yeah. of players how to play it because they don't know how to play right. it either. And you have to play right. at least three sessions because if they play D&D already and they come to the new game, they're not going to play the new game the right way first. Not their fault. It's just if you've, Even if if you've only played credit, you're going to do it wrong. Right. Uh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, the first yeah, right. time I ran Fate, it was a colossal failure. Because you can't run fate like D&D and everybody at the table. And I knew that as the DM and I tried, but when you're playing with a group of people who don't understand the fate point economy that is inherent in all fate games, it doesn't work. It doesn't work the way it's supposed to. And it doesn't feel right. And you can tell the whole session that it doesn't feel right. Uh, The same thing happened with mouse guard, right? Is that it's not that it's a bad game. Mouse guard is awesome. I love it. But if you have people approaching the game in a way that would match the D&D ethos, you have to kind of break out of that first before, you're, before you can actually play the game the way that it kind of is supposed to be played, if that makes sense. Kind of, Sorry to mean to cut you off. It kind of here. happens also with, like, I was thinking of Powered by Apocalypse has that problem, too, where you don't yep. roll dice very often. And, and the way you roll dice is only if certain moves are triggered. And a lot of people, even from the DM standpoint, are like, oh, you are looking for something, so roll something for perception. And it's like, no, you're not supposed to do that. If they want to look for something in this yep. game, they find it because that's going to push the, the narrative forward. And that's how the system works. And even as a mm-hmm. DM, even, even seasoned DMs get that wrong the first time they run a Powered by the Apocalypse game. And that's just the, yeah. the problem. I, we tried also uh, the Genesis system with Edge of the Empire, mm-hmm. and it was the same problem. You're you're right. like okay, but what am I supposed to do with all these like advantages and disadvantages? And I don't right. understand. Those are narrative tools. Those are meant to be narrative tools. But yeah. people coming from right. a D and D standpoint are like, what do you mean narrative? It's a point. What am I supposed to do with this point I got? Right, right, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's that's what came to mind was so so the game system itself is a is a huge consideration for what kind of story you want to tell and experience you want to have and you kind of have to know that as a player and as a games master so you pick the appropriate system because you could make a mistake right because these game systems they vary from Mm -hmm. a thin veneer of paper between the the players and the story or a brick house that confines you in a certain way that forces you into a certain space so it sounds like some of these systems really are confining and if you're trying to have a certain type of game or experience they're going to fight you right. whereas others you, you are much more yielding for being able to kind of mold what you what yeah. you want mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. part of the thing with that is too you know you just whether it's, it's i think it's whether you're dming or playing and you're, you're just so used to having played a different you know with one system whether it's D, whatever edition or pathfinder or or fate or dungeon dungeon master or no was it uh, dungeon war or anything like that. and then you try to switch systems you have you're going to have the issue of just 
your lens is going to need adjusting. You know, you, you're you're used to playing an RPG through a, through the lens of whatever your primary experience is. I mean, I was involved in drum core, drum drum and bugle core for a long time, and it's the same. Some probably it's the same issue with that because you have, there's all sorts of arguments, last discussions of people who marched in different decades and different eras and say, oh, only only the time I marched is what I consider as you know quote unquote right. real drum core because that's the lens that they. Mm-hmm partook the activity in and then they're not and then they're not able to adjust their lenses for for the fact that oh it's it's now 40 years later and you know people the activity has just changed radically in that right. time and probably none of the things you did 40 years ago when you did it are still being done today but it's still going on people are still doing it in a completely different way so yeah it's the same thing with with our with with with, with role-playing games you, know, you have to be able to adjust that lens and say okay i'm i'm not playing D and D anymore. Like, like I don't know. Like, I'm. There's been times when I kind of feel like the odd person out a bit, just because my experience with playing D and D is not. I don't consider myself. Well, okay, I probably have a bit of power gaming going <laughs> in, in me. Um, I don't consider myself any a combat in combat. I don't. I'm. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't enjoy a command that's nothing but combat. I'm more of the sort of person who is like. I like to make. I like to make characters be, and focus on you know all the cool abilities that the characters get, whether it's magic spells, whether it's you know, mm-hmm. character abilities, and then f- finding ways to use those to solve whatever the problems, um, you know, whatever the problems or challenges we're dealing with. Now, if you, if I was to switch to you know a campaign where like I think like Quest is one I've I've recently seen where it's it's much more narratively driven. It's something it's a game that came out this year where I'm like, well, I'm gonna like like really the only character power I have is my abil- own ability to tell a story. Mm-hmm. So for me, like that would require a dramatic adjustment to my my own gaming style. Yeah. Yeah, and I I think also though that um, which is something I'm yeah. To so do. you know that it's interesting you say that. The, so one of the things that is really great for if you if you're so like what you're describing is to me not a super duper power gamer, right? Like super duper power gamer vies to build the most optimal character every single time so that they can dominate in combat. Right. right. That that's my de- and I I'm not saying I'm right or whatever, but that's my how I think of what a power gamer is. That's my definition of a power gamer. And there's nothing wrong with being a power gamer, right? If that's what you enjoy, hey, great, that's awesome, right? I I want people to play the game they want and to have a lot of fun. Um, but like, but what you're describing to me doesn't sound like that. What you're describing is you're trying to make a PC that is competent at something, and you want to be able to solve certain types of problems with those areas of competency, right? And so what that really, and this is kind of not intuitive in D&D, but what that really, um, what you're really describing is perfect for a one-on-one game. And the reason I say that is because then the DM can actually look at your character and tailor the challenges and situations to exactly the things that you are good at and not good at. And really, um, really design those sort of high points and low points in the campaign for that specific character. That's that's what I would love to do for every game I've ever run, right? But it's really hard as soon as you start getting three, four, five characters. How do you possibly do that yeah. in a way that that deals with every single character? Right. So so there I lean more on story then and it becomes less about optimization of numbers and more about optimization of getting your part of the story to be told. Um okay. And ultimately, and ultimately, and I'm sorry to jump in, but the ultimate is like you know the goal, at least from my point of view, is like, and, and I've I don't know, I don't always succeed with this, but the goal should be, like, if you're playing on a role playing game, is not to make a Swiss Army knife, mm-hmm. but to actually make an actual 
living, breathing person. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. Um, I mean, I, I, I feel like there's a huge growth of games in the past decade, right? Um, and not that there weren't games before. It's not like D&D only existed by itself for 30 years, and then all of a sudden, 10 years ago, things started happening. But um, there's been a huge sur- a resurgence, I guess I should say, in the past 10 or 15 years of games that try to do things in different ways, right? Like for a long time, there were uh, games that tried to be basically do D&D but better, right? Like we call those fantasy heartbreakers, right? Like they sound so great. It fixes this one problem that somebody had, but then it breaks everything else, right? So it doesn't really work all the way. That's the heartbreaking part. But, um, you know, that's still just really like, well, I want to take basically the feel of D&D and put it on another chassis and see if it works because that chassis I just put it on fixes the steering, right? Um, But lately there have been these games Lately, I say lately because I'm, you know, in my 40s, and so 15 years ago is lately. Sorry. Um, <laughs> lately, there's been these games that actually do things differently, right? Um, and it's really fascinating to me because the, it it does really focus you on different goals or different ways to resolve different conflicts. Um, but you know, ultimately, you know, as I said before, D and D is the eight hundred pound gorilla. So I don't, I don't think it's possible to get away from D and D, and still, um, how do I say this? Because it's going to come out wrong. Uh, you know, I, I'm not the type of person who has one single gaming group, and I've played with the same players for like thirty years, right? Like. I don't have that. I, I, because of grad school and various different life events, I moved around a lot. I, after high school, I, I've had like 12 different groups of players that played, you know, different games and whatnot. And so I don't have this experience where I have this kind of monolithic game group and I know exactly what they like and I know exactly how I can tailor things to them and I, you know, whatever. But I don't remember where I was going with this, but, but, but my point is, This is crazy. Uh, my point is that um, it's like a golden age of gaming. Like so, so it sounds like I'm 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 kind of being dismissive, or I'm saying it's a bad thing that D and D is the hundred eight hundred pound gorilla. But here's the thing: they've brought in so many new players with fifth edition that I think now there's a wide open field, and some of those players, even if it's only five percent, are going to also want to play and explore other games, right? And so that's a really good thing. So despite my, I, I kind of, I know I kind of sound dismissive about, you know, this just D&D being the RPG, right? RPG and D&D are synonymous, right? Like Kleenex and tissue, that's basically synonymous. Um, mm-hmm, yeah. uh, you know, and, and that's a problem in some respects, but there's also some good that comes out of that because it might be possible to find some percentage of that player base that's new might want to look at other things once they once they sort of grow into fifth edition and then get tired of fifth edition right like david you mentioned you know you're kind of you kind of fell out of love with D, and it's not that D is bad it's just you've realized sure. as you're older and that you want different things out of the game and most D games don't give you those things you want anymore so you have to look elsewhere well, i think there's now a huge player base that's going to start doing that more often right hmm. so anyway cool <laughs> 
Sam, real quick, you've you've run like Star Wars RPG groups. Oh right? yeah, in several different editions of Star Wars. Yes. <laughs> okay. Have you have you like to go back to your kind of comment about D and D being the eight hundred pound gorilla? Have you found like when you run that that people come to that because you know they've played D and D or they want to play something else and then but still take the same D and D approach, or do they come to that because they say, oh yeah, I oh there's a Star Wars RPG, awesome, I love Star Wars, let's play that, and then don't come don't you know take a D and D approach into it. I'm just wondering like, the fact that you know yeah. you have a system that's basically tied in with such a major major franchise like that uh, is kind of a different way to go. Yeah, to, so to most people that I've that I've played the the latest Star Wars RPG, the the Fantasy Flight games, which by the way that license is about mm-hmm. to end, but um, that that system with the funky dice, the the narrative system, the Genesis system, right? Um, that is a really fun system, but most of the people that come to that. They're not necessarily D and D players. Some of them ha- obviously have played D and D for years or whatever. But most people are they're sort of role players that already gave up on D and D, and this is the new Star Wars, and they want to play in the Star Wars universe. So for Star okay. Wars, it's usually, and that, of course, I'm you know this is a broad brush, but it's not true for everybody. But uh, most, in my experience, most of the people that want to play that narrative game, it's because they want to play in the Star Wars universe. And Edge of the Empire does that flavor of star wars very very well very well um if if you have a person that will run it the way that it's kind of meant to be run like so if you get a D dm who's only ever run D and they try to run fantasy flight games and they don't really understand how it's supposed to, you know how the narrative stuff is supposed to work it's going to be bumpy at first they might grow into it right um, it's just like anything else. It's hard to GM any game. It's hard to GM a new game. It's hard to, I mean, like, I'm not, I'm not, I, I, I sound like I'm saying those people must be stupid or something. That's not how I mean it at all. It's just when you come from a system like D and D that has basically a D 20 is what you roll to solve everything. Um, yeah. FFG system is way, way different from that, right? The probabilities are completely different. If you know D and D and you're a math person and you look at a D 20 and you say, okay, well, I got to roll a 16. That means, you know, I only have a, you know, each each number on that D20 is 5%, right? So, but I, I can roll 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. That's five numbers. I've got a 25% chance of success, right? Like if you're doing that math in your head because you love the D20 and you can understand the probabilities, right? If you know that rolling a 10 means that you, you have a 55% chance of success, right? And you think of in those probabilities and you're thinking, well, it doesn't, you know, like I the FFG dice, are completely different. They do not have those same probabilities. There is a probability table you can look at, but it's not so intuitive in your head because it's not meant to be. It's meant to give you some odd combinations of triumph and despair, right? Mm. And you're supposed to apply that to what's happening, not as in necessarily I get a plus one bonus, right? You might get plus one going forward for something, but like you're supposed to apply it to that scene and situation and either do something really cool or have something really bad happen that now you have to get out of. And the dice are trying to help that along. Um, That's a very different set of things to do than what you do in D and D, which is I have a, a way that I can solve this problem and it's either a spell or a skill or attempting something and I'm going to roll a d20 and I can relatively within a certain amount of certainty understand what the probability of me succeeding at that probably is. FFG is not quite like that. It's it's very different. Is it a, it's a collaborative system so it's so the player has a hand in in describing what 
occurs when when they get a certain result. So rules is written when somebody rolls particular results. Um, if it's if the players don't want to, the DM can do can determine all the what the advantage means and all that stuff. And advantage is one or two of those. And uh, so depending on how your character is and what kind of abilities you have, some things are written like, oh, if I get four advantages, that's a critical or whatever. And so then nobody's determining that. It's just numbers. Um, but if there's a triumph or a despair, some of those, the major changes, right? Or if there's an advantage and it's related to something that doesn't have that, that type, if it's not combat related, so it doesn't have that written in stone. Um, yeah, the DM and the player can negotiate about what actually happens. The DM always gets veto power, but it's meant to be like, let's forge this scene together. Let's yeah. let's decide what bidding. this triumph means. It might not even mean that my I rolled it, but that my character might not actually have that. It might be some, you know, this other PC over here who was in trouble now suddenly something happens that saves them because of what I did somehow, right? Like that's what it's meant to do is make okay. that narrative connection. And that's not something that's that's inherent to D and D because because like you know you know taking a critical role as an example, Matt Mercer's favorite phrase you know when he says how do you want to do this and he passes mm -hmm. control over to the players. That's because all those players are experienced storytellers mm -hmm. themselves, but that's not something that's typical the way a D and D game operates. Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> fifth edition and fourth and third also. Uh, have this problem, and Karu mentioned it earlier, and that is the problem of when a player wants to do something, they look at their character sheet and they say, oh, I, I'm really good at the survival skill. I'm going to use my survival skill. I'm really good at acrobatics. I'm going to use acrobatics. They don't often, the, often the game isn't run as what how would you what would you what do you want to do yeah. how do you want to like like the way i like i don't watch critical role but i i i know what you're talking about right like yeah. he'll say oh that's what you want to do how are you attempting that right yeah. it's Describe not about it. here, the role first yeah. it's about the description yeah. first then the role yeah. adjusts right or whatever so that's how D, D used to be a long time ago right because there was no skill system so when you wanted to do something, you had to describe what you were doing, and then the DM would decide, you know, uh, well, okay, so roll an attribute check, and or I'll just tell you, yes, you you succeeded at that thing. What you what you're talking about sounds reasonable. You have a 17 dexterity. You're like, you know, an acrobat, so you did it. I'm not even going to make you roll, right? Or if it's really really difficult, I'm going to make you roll. You roll under your attribute, and you're done, right? Um, and there wasn't really a skill associated with it. It was just, well, what are you attempting to do? Let me try to decide. But the problem with that is that had a lot of DM fiat. In other words, the DM is the one who decided every time. It wasn't really collaborative. It was the player saying what they're doing. The DM says what to roll or, or if you auto-succeed or if the task is impossible. And the problem with that is when you have a really popular game, there's a lot of bad DMs. I mean, right? Nobody ever likes to say it, but look, a lot of DMs are... Okay, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Just like in anything, right? A lot of players are too, right? But I mean, you know, I'm not trying to dog on anybody, but it's just that's human yeah. nature, right? In any endeavor that you have, some people just suck at it. Some people sure. are really great, right? And most people are in the middle, and it, that's fine. And it's okay. Especially this is this is such a subjective, right? Right. Uh, skill set, right? And it and it also depends on the makeup of the party and the different personalities and all that. So I'm not dogging on anybody. It's okay to actually enjoy something you suck at, okay? So I'm not even saying like you suck to get out of the game. I'm just saying sometimes people people aren't very good, right? And if you have a DM 
who's been DMing a long time, but they don't have the style that you enjoy, you're going to say, man, that DM sucks, right? But if that's the only group you can find and you're stuck with that DM and that DM is a really punitive person, right? Really punitive DM and they are vindictive, right? They're going to make that game unfun for you. And that happened more than anybody wants to admit in first edition and in coming into second edition. And that's why third edition is the way it is. Third edition D&D is all about system mastery. It's the first edition that puts all the rules right in the hands of the players. There's a rule for freaking everything because lots of DMs were crap DMs and were punitive and did things inconsistently not even because they meant to, but just because they couldn't remember what ruling they made last time. So they're doing a ruling this way now. And you know what? If it screws you this time, oh, well. Like, that's just whatever. That was the ruling, right? Or maybe they're mad at you right now. Maybe you, you know, you made them mad in person, you know, personally outside of the game. And now they're going to punish you, right? Like, I mean, you know, it's, that happens, right? People are people. People have behaviors that are in, unexplainable, you know, or whatever. And so so they made a rule set that was trying to guard against that, right? So third edition created a game that it really paid off if you knew the rules really well. And it really, uh, it was possible to know the rules really well because the, you had no longer had the case where the first paragraph of the Dungeon Master's Guide says, hey, if you're a player, close this book right now, you're not allowed to read it, right? Or hey, yeah. if you're, you know, because in the first edition, there weren't even combat tables in the player's handbook. They were in the DMG. So if you rolled a die, the DM was the one who looked up whether you hit or not. You had no clue because it also was, you know, descending armor class. So the lower the armor class number, the better you were, you know, the better AC you had. But that means that if you roll a high number, you hit a lower number AC. That's not that easy to flip it over in your head necessarily. And you don't know what the AC of the creature is. So they're looking it up on a table and you just don't get to know. Second edition kind of changed that because they let the players have their Thaco table right on the sheet. But you still, it still really was meant to be the DMs have this knowledge, players have this other knowledge. The DM knows all, adjudicates all, does everything, and runs the world, and you just play in it. And if your DM is a, yeah, if your DM is a jerk, that means you might not have fun or they might do something mean. But hey, that's within the rules, and you're not even allowed to read the rules as a player. But third edition changed that. So, you know, not to go off on a huge tangent, but that's that's exactly why third edition was the way it was. And third edition, fourth edition, fifth edition are all like that, where, well, third and fourth, there's a rule for everything. Whatever you need to do, it's in a book somewhere that is published for the game. They're all core rule books, and they're all meant to be used, and they all have all the rules that you need and want, and everybody can learn them and know them, and you use them at the table, and therefore it forces the DM to be fair, because since there's a rule for that, you adjudicate it the same way every time. Fifth edition has moved away from that particular part of it. Fifth edition stayed with the players knowing all the rules. That's a good thing. I'm not, I'm, I'm not denigrating that part, but, but then they moved back to, well, the rules are guidelines and the DM has a lot of leeway and we don't release a book every month. So there's not 1200 books worth of rules with a rule for everything, there are rules for most things. And otherwise, the DM, it's their job to try and, and do the best they can. And that's really good for some people and really cruddy for others. And that's also why there's a crap ton of blogs that give lots of DM advice. 
because it's not so easy to really know all that stuff, right? So that's my diatribe about how it used to be and how it is. So in other words, we, we lost something, right? So while all of those things are progress and they're actually good things, because I would rather have a game with a rule for everything if it means that a lot of people have fun because a DM doesn't get to just screw you over because they want to. Like, I, I like that change, right? But what we lost was we had to implement a skill system that forces a role for everything. Mm. Because that's how you fairly adjudicate everything is if you force a rule, a role, and you have a rule about how to determine the difficulty of that task, now everybody is doing it the same exact way. It's completely 100% fair. And that's what you have. You have a fair game. You have a relatively balanced game. And there it is, third and fourth edition. Fifth edition kind of rolled that back, but you still have a skill system. You still have play in it. And you still have the case where if you want to do something, you're rolling a d20. It didn't used to be that way. It used to be that, you know, in fact, one of my favorite games, Castles and Crusades, it's basically like first edition, but it's with modern rules. So you're still doing everything with a d20, but not everything requires a roll. And not everything is all infused with magic either. So that's those are the two reasons why I love the game. Okay, because you, if you say to me as a player, "Oh, I want to look here. I want to do that," my first instinct is, "Okay, I'll tell you what you find in Castles and Crusades." In D and D, my first instinct is, "Okay, roll an investigate check," because that's what the rules say you're supposed to do, mm-hmm. right? So that's that's the thing. There is that everybody rolls for everything. That's what D and D is about. And that's fun, right? I love rolling dice, right? It's my one problem with Numenera (laughs) (laughs) is the DM doesn't roll any dice in Numenera. There are no dice rolls by the DM whatsoever. On one hand, that's very freeing, and it lets you run the game in a very different way. On the other hand, I like to roll dice, right? (laughs) I like to roll dice. So... Yeah, I, I bought hundreds of dollars worth of dice to use them, not just let them sit around. (laughs) Right. Got three containers of dice. (laughs) Yeah, I got two shoeboxes. Yeah, like no, no. To go back yeah. to go back to your comment, like about like you know, you know, core changes between you know earlier editions and and modern stuff. You know, one of the other things, it wasn't just the rules that were unfair. The stories themselves in these earlier editions, first and second editions, were written to be unfair. I mean, Gary Gygax explicitly stated when he wrote Tomb of Horrors, "I wrote this to kill my to kill my players, or at least to challenge them in ways that they have not been challenged." Because as he put it, you know, they're basically they're getting up and mm-hmm. they're they've they've gotten to a point in the game where they're you know at such a high level they think they can do anything. They think that's nothing's a mm-hmm. challenge for them. Okay. I'm going to show yeah. them, and I'm going to show them in ways that are utterly un- – like, right. he literally says this this module was written to be mm. unfair. And combat prowess makes no difference in Tomb of Horrors until the very end, if you'd live, mm. right? Pretty much, yeah. And pretty, pretty he did much. that for a tournament, but here's the other thing. It's it's also in more subtle ways, right? Like, he also mm. – there's very punitive things in the DMG. There's a lot of punitive advice in the DMG. Basically, your characters do something you don't want. Don't give them experience for that thing, right? Take their experience away. Don't give them experience or take their magic item. Don't reward them Mm -hmm. or, Hey, yeah, they just got to level up, but now they have to go find somebody to train them and they have to spend 18,000 gold pieces per week of training. Good luck. Yeah, to actually right. acquire that's the skills right. they would get. But that's the way yeah. to suck their gold off, right? Like they spent all this time earning this treasure and gold and magic items. On. Well, let's take that away. Right. Like yeah. it's, so you thankfully know. we have so sorry so thankfully we have at least moved away from at least what's des- what's encouraged as a as a way of playing you know, as mm-hmm. DM versus players. Right. Thankfully we more or less have moved away from that at least within the written rules of the newer systems. Right. right, and that's why I say it's right. I, like I'm not 
I'm, I'm not saying third edition is a bad game because as a rule for everything, that's well, that was a needed evolution of the game, right? It needed to do that because it needed to have an answer to, you know, some DMs who either just don't know how to run the game and don't, if there's not a rule for everything, they can't think on their feet or whatever, like, okay, they needed a solution for that. And they also needed a solution for punitive rules, right? Um, and, and, you know, the thing is like Gary, Gary Gygax, he didn't write those rules really because he was trying to be an a- right? He wrote them as a response to the behavior of his players and how he thought he was, could challenge them, right? Like he wasn't saying, I'm going to be a total jackwad and I'm going to like do this. But what he said was, well, my players are doing these five things I really don't like. I don't want to run a game with the players behaving this way. I need to teach them a lesson and how to, you know, I'm not saying that's the right thing. I'm just saying he had a reason for doing those things. And Sometimes, if you know, it's sort of like escalating something instead of de-escalating it, right? Like when you respond to bad behavior by behaving badly yourself, you're just making it worse, right? You're not making it better. And but you know, here's the thing: he wrote like a bazillion jillion words about that because he had an article, you know, in every Dragon magazine, and he had, you know, he wrote all these tournament modules and he and like everything he wrote. And as the father of D and D, like he, everybody, you know wants to hear what he has to say because he has the seminal, you know, uh, the, the original giant idea of what the game is. I'm not ignoring Dave Arneson, but since we're talking about Gygax, right? Like, and yep. so, uh, you know, he's like, you know, you, who do you go to if you want to get to the source of what a game is supposed to be? Well, you go to the creator. Well, guess what? It's been 40 years. I mean, he's passed away now in 2008, but you know, even in 2005, people would go to him and want to get answers about, you know, what the game would be like if he had kept TSR and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, yeah, the it's been 30 years though, man, it's been 30 years since that. So, you know, so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm way off on a tangent now, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's a different game. And that, but in part, like the rise of games where you don't roll as much, is because of the way D&D does everything now, where you roll for everything, right? You roll for everything. And that's why, like, so let's go to Call of Cthulhu. Part of part, What can make a Call of Cthulhu game really bad is if you have to roll for everything. You know why? Because mm-hmm. you suck when you make a new player. Yeah. You might have a yes. 7% mm. chance of doing something on your skill list, right? 7%. Mm. How the heck are you going to roll a D100 and get under 7 the majority of the time? You're not. Yeah. <laughs> 93% of the time, you're going to fail, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So yep. how do you do that thing? Well, you don't do it well. So instead, you play a game where how you narrate what your actions are counts more than the dice. If you get to a point where you can't narrate what you're doing anymore, and the DM has to say, roll your dice, you've lost. You've already lost. You did something wrong. In fact, that's actually a saying yeah. we used to say in old basic D&D. If you get to the point where the DM says roll for that, you screwed up. Because you're you about to up. die. Yep. Because if you have to roll a <laughs> yeah. save versus death, you literally, if you don't make that roll, you die. So you did something wrong. Yep. I've, I've, never, I've never played Cthulhu. I've only seen, like you know, some a few senior you know, listen to like a few online games of it but yeah like my experience with that is uh, yeah every like yeah it's like if if you're having to roll for something yeah that means you screwed up yeah. or some or you may not necessarily screwed up but you tried something that you maybe weren't supposed to try and now something's about to happen to you as a result and let's see let's see if you live or die or go right. insane yeah all right i still want to play that game oh yeah it's way. fun i mean I, yeah it's but it's a different it's a different way to think about 
how your your character is supposed to be responding to the world and how the DM is going to respond to you, right? Like, you know, I'm exaggerating a little bit. If you make a call through the character, the things you're good at, you're probably going to have like a 40 or 50% chance of succeeding at those. So it's not down seven for everything, right? There will be some things you only have a seven or 10% chance on, but the majority of things you have, you know, a pretty pretty decent, you know, half and half. So if you're rolling for that, there might be a chance you'll succeed, but you're still, you're not like 90% capable, but think about in D and D, if you, if you're playing a character who has dexterity as their main attribute, you've got an 18 dex, right? And you're proficient in whatever thing you're attempting. And you've got some skill that gives you double proficiency. So if you're, let's say level eight, You've got plus four proficiency. If you get double proficiency, that's plus eight. Plus you get a plus four or five from your attribute bonus. Plus if you have a magic something that helps that, you might be adding 13 to your roll or something, right? Like you can make a really, really high roll. Um, That's pretty consistently guaranteed. You're probably going to succeed at whatever you're attempting, right? Right? Most of the time. Most of the time you are. That just reminds me of uh, the rogue... That is no longer an active pl- uh, character in the game, but uh, uh, I have a rogue in the uh, Dungeons of the uh, Mad Mage. Mad Mage. With a passive perception of 32. Right. Oh Jesus God. Christ. Fifth edition. Right. I know it's possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's like we were talking the other day. Like, you know, I, I I came up with a way to essentially make a character that can never that can that's like something like a plus twenty five on initiative. Right. You can never go. It, it's, it's absolutely insane. Yeah, it's like I'm like, 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 like this is the only thing this character is ever going to do. If they get in combat, they're going to go right. first. But that's probably the only thing they're going to be able to do because that's literally right. what the entire right. focus of, of but that character is. But as long as they get, they're a rogue too, so they have that problem. But if but if they get some kind of special bonus for that first attack, it's great to go first every yep. time, right? Yeah. I mean, you take sure. out the big bad in one hit. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it's compounded in this case because it's a rogue, so they've got reliable talent. So all of their like wisdom based things, oh, yeah. the minimum mm-hmm. they can roll is a seventeen. So without rolling, they already got a seventeen. Because if they right. roll under a ten, <laughs> it they just take the ten and they have a plus seven minimum to their bonuses. Right. So it's like. Yeah. yeah, specialized. Don't lie to this person. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's like a it's like a living lie detector, mm-hmm. basically. But see, that's why that's where that that's where a one-on-one play can actually shine, right? Yeah. Because if the person makes that character that way, they're really good at one or two things and they kind of suck at everything else. And that's where the challenge is, right? If it's a spy related like mission or whatever she shines anything else i mean so but think about that right you take that character through a one-on-one spy-based mission 90 percent of the things that they encounter they're going to have no problem with and you know that so it's okay right it's the other five or ten percent where the real challenge comes in and that's where the game will shine because you know that Right. But it's harder to do that when you've got like seven people. But if there's a one on one, right, then it's then you can do that. And so that makes that kind of optimization really interesting. Right. That kind of optimization is not as interesting to me when it's in a party. But when it's a one on one game, that is phenomenal because you can let them succeed most of the time and let that work. Let their whatever their effort was they put into making that character with a 32 freaking passive perception. I mean, (laughs) it's amazing. Right. Like. Yep. Let them so that means they're really good at it. That's perfect. Yep. But you know what? If you look at the world, right, 
what happens is if somebody's really, really good at one thing, guess what? They're not often very good at a lot of other things. Like they might be oh, mediocre yes. at other things, yeah. but uh-huh. not everything, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. She's kind of ended up being a bit of a background NPC and is running a uh, a their business basically. So um, it works. It works for them. And like yeah. I, I actually have been thinking of like making some one on one stuff or two on like with two of the people mm-hmm. because we have one on two more than one person in the group has ended up with like secondary characters that are not in the main group at the time because they got tired of the character or whatever. And just taking those characters on like a side quest using those. And like you said, tailoring it to what they're good at in this case, like, yeah, spying and figuring out things. Yeah. 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 I, have, I imagine if I'm DMing that, I'm I'm pulling in every James Bond and Tom Clancy trope I can because <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. that's because that's what that style because yeah. that's the, what's going to yeah. fit that character. It's like okay, yeah, you're going right. to want like you know gadgets and and you know in, infiltration and espionage <laughs> and all that stuff. And here's the thing about that. So to get us back to the topic, which is about other games, right? What's funny about that is D and D can shine in that case if you only really have one or two characters. Yeah, but if you don't, it doesn't shine. And other systems would be better for that type of game, right? But like leverage is great for a group where each of them have a specialty and they're pulling a heist. Leverage is a fantastic mm-hmm. game for that. Um, Band of Blades is good if you're want to play a real urban sort of, you know, still fantasy style, but a different kind of everybody's a thief, but they have different slight specialties yeah. and you can make that whole party work together like a thieves guild almost. Like that's really fantastic for that. I wouldn't necessarily do that in D and D. It'd have to be a very specific type of campaign, whereas Band of Blades is built for that, right? So, like, it's just, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Anyway, I have a question. <laughs> One last question to wrap this whole thing up. Yeah. If you yes. had to, knowing what we're doing now in terms of the story for D and D brief, what mm-hmm. system would you mm-hmm. have picked for the style of game we ended up with? That's a great question. Mm. Um, or does it matter? I mean, the way we play does it, is this a, c- a circumstance where the system just doesn't matter as much? Um, I don't. I don't <laughs> ever like to say system doesn't matter because I don't believe it. Right? I, I like, but I could see where I, you could get me ninety percent there. Right? That system doesn't matter because it really does. The GM matters more than system matters in any, no matter what, no yes. matter what. The GM always matters more, and then the players matter the second amount more. Right? And then system matter, and then system. What would I use? Oh, I here's the thing we're playing a game that's very deadly right so i the challenges that you face are set up for D, right mm-hmm. like i think this game is in the right system actually despite everything i've already said this game is in the right system because you have a lot of magic and because the challenges are deadly because of the way that 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 i've run it based on your characters so you've basically t- taken into account the system when doing things like programming the fact that we only have one battle every like week. Going back to our first like what opened the discussion in terms of like yeah, this game mm-hmm. is is okay because you've taken into account the fact that we have a five minute work. Right. Day. Yeah, and that doesn't bo- it doesn't bother me to say that we have a five minute work day. Like that's not a I, I'm not seeing it as a problem I have to work around, mm-hmm. which it could be in certain groups, right? Yeah. I'm seeing it as this is just how this game fell out and how these players interact. 
Um, now, that's not to say it's not without problems. I mean, you know, we've already talked about how Konos, because uh, because we don't have as many combats and because we don't take short rests, he lost some of the essence of what the good things about his character class are. Yeah. Right? Um, and so he feels a little bit less powerful in certain ways uh, because not that he can't play well or whatever, but just that that specific character has a flaw in it that's because of the system, not because of uh, anything else. And But because of the way that this game gets played, the system doesn't work for that character as well. Um, but because everybody's into the story and we're all having fun, it hasn't really impacted things as much as maybe it would if if we weren't doing you know what i'm saying like i feel like everybody because we're all on the same page and you're trying to like tell the story and solve these issues i think it still works a little bit but there it's not without its own problems yeah. for sure um so i'm not saying that's a 100 percent perfect match but it's probably hard to do a perfect match for a game especially yeah, since sure. you have different aspects yeah. to it like it's not all going to be adventure it's not all going to be intrigue it's not all going to be battle right yeah I feel like um so the, the the one problem I have with FFG the the Star Wars system but the Genesis system is it still requires a lot of dice rolling. Mm -hmm. And I I feel like if I had a game that had that same type of mechanic that allowed for a lot of relatively easy narrative change where the dice does right so not like fate where in fate, you have these fate points, and um, you can compel certain aspects and determine certain aspects of the scene based on paying a fate point or getting a fate point. So let's say you're in a combat in an alley, um, and you're fighting somebody, right? Let's say it's a modern game, and you're fighting, you're fist fighting somebody, um, like some, you know, a couple people you're fist fighting, and you end up pushing one of them away, and... Uh, you want them to be knocked out. You might say, well, I want to determine that over there, there was a dumpster, right? Which wasn't described in the scene to begin with. There's a dumpster that they hit their head on when I pushed them back that way. And I'll pay this fate point to tag the fact that there's a dumpster in this scene, right? Now, I'm not presenting this exactly within the rules, but it, that's basically how it works, right? Where the player has fate points they can pay to determine something, or they've got aspects and tags, and they could do these different... It's it's a give and take. And the, the DM, or the GM in that case, can just say, okay, I'll take that fate point from you. Yes, there is now a dumpster there, and yeah, they, you know, they might hit their head and not, it might knock them out, so now you only have one combatant to fight, right? Um, or you might be doing something and you're going to succeed no problem, right? And f fate uses fudge dice, which uh, are six-sided dice. There's two negatives and two positive and two blank sides, right? So you have a range of negative four to positive four because you roll four dice every time. So you might you might really supremely fail if you roll four negatives, or you might really supremely succeed if you roll four positives. But I might say, okay, well, um, you're, you rolled really, really well. But I'm going to say that there's this complication I want to enter into this scene. In order for you to accept that complication, I'm going to give you this fate point, right? And then you would – so it's a give and take. It's an economy, right? It's not something you hoard and then only use like an inspiration point. You use it absolutely when you need it, right? Like you can use a fate point absolutely when you need it. But the idea of the game is it's a give and take you know, you don't just have one at a time necessarily, but it's a give and take between the DM and the characters. 
giving and, and, and receiving these fate points to be able to allow to narrate your own aspects of the, the game and what's happening in any given scene and, and what the responses are of NPCs and, and that kind of thing. Um, very, very different from something like D&D where there's really no give and take. Even in inspiration, there's no give and take. You just say, I'm going to use that inspiration and you use it, right? And the give and take there is supposed to be when the DM awards you the inspiration or doesn't, right? But almost every game that I've seen and been involved in, either the DM doesn't award inspiration because they just forget, or they just say, okay, at the beginning of every session, you have inspiration, right? I'm bad at it too, because inspiration is just not something I think about as part of the game. So even in my face-to-face game, I, I have these nice poker chips that I take with me to remind me to give inspiration when they do something really cool. And I still forget what the freaking thing's sitting <laughs> in front of me, right? It's just, same, it's same just thing. not part same of my milieu with D&D. It feels, but at the same time, as players, on. we're not asking for it. We're not, we're not demanding it either. So, across the board, it's, it's not. Well, a, and in this game, it doesn't matter as much because there aren't, because we don't do combat as much. There's not a lot of opportunity for you to be like, oh crap! If I had an inspiration point, we wouldn't have had that really bad thing happen in that scene, right? Like, we don't, we don't play that way necessarily. We, we have a very different game. But, but even in my in other games that I've played in and run it's hard to get the DM to use it. And I'm, I'm of course, once again, broad brush, right. But part of it's because I'm, you know, I've been playing for a very long time. And even though like, I'll say things like, you know, I, I learn something new every single game that I play in or run, I learn something like I either have a realization. Oh yeah. I remember that's the thing I should think about from now on, you know, or whatever. And I, because I always strive to learn, but I still freaking forget inspiration every time. Like I just, it's just not something because it feel to me, it feels tacked on. It's just not part of D and D for me. Yeah. And I haven't really worked to make it part of D and D ideals, bonds, flaws. Those things for me are things for you to work with, right? For you to say, Hey, my character is supposed to be this way. That's going to help guide my behavior in the game. I'm not, I, I'm not going to sit there and go, Oh, well, this says you're really a jealous person or what? Like I'm, that's not, you know, I, I don't play that way, so it's not something intuitive to me in within the confines of the game. Um, and so that's why inspiration isn't something that I use in D and D Fifth Edition a lot, just because it doesn't match the way I run the game, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because I don't I don't want to be the police person, the the policeman who says, "Hey, your bond says this," or "Hey, your flaw says this," and you just acted against that. I'm not going to give you an inspiration this game this session like that's just not you know or hey you really i i'm memorizing all of your bonds flaws and ideals and you just did a great job here here you go like i've got so many other things going on i don't want to have to memorize that like that's for you to help guide your own behavior not for me to say because also here's the thing right and we've talked about this before specifically with this game the characters that you are now is not necessarily who you thought you were going to be the first session Mm-hmm. So are the ideals, bonds, and flaws that you that you rolled up or that you determined for that character, do those even apply? Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. I don't feel like as the DM, I should say, hey, those don't apply anymore. You've gone 10 levels and you're not playing that character the way you're supposed to. Like, uh, just. Yeah. 
Well, it's it's funny, Sam. You bring up inspiration. As I mean, as a bard, I have my own inspiration economy, right? Right. And and I I even have a hard time with it because it feels too mechanical. I don't like here. You get a die. I, I picture right. actually like reaching and handing him a die. Here's a bonus die. Here's a bonus die. I, you get a die. I don't you like that. It feels so yeah. unnatural. Like it needs to be role played, but there's not a, there's not an opportunity to role play it all the time. So I don't do it. So that's the so that's the problem with that that mechanism to me it just feels very artificial and tacked on and i feel like that's part of the reason why if you notice some of the some of the bardic things that you can do some of the some of the abilities now basically say you can expend one of your inspirations to do this right Mm -hmm. but it's something for your own self because that way you don't have to think of like oh well i have to have this role-playing reason why i'm giving imarin this d8 or whatever like you know, and oftentimes when you want to use that inspiration, it's either at a point when you're not sure, like, oh, should I do this and then give everybody this inspiration and then maybe we don't actually, we won't need it. Or, you know, if you're in the middle of battle, you can't really say, I'm going to step back here and play a song for 12 minutes. And then we're, you know, like, it's not, yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird, yeah, it's an interesting, weird mechanic. Yeah. Uh, Cause I play, a, I play a bard actually in Karu's game and I always forget to use my inspiration for people. <laughs> so what I did was I started, I started looking and I started saying, okay, well I need to be able to utilize that, that inspiration kind of pool that I have doing different things because I'm going to forget to do the song or to do whatever. Like I'm just, I'm going to forget. I, I noticed the, the, the bard that we have for dungeon of the mad mage, what he does is basically looks around and he's like, all right, who's the one that's most in trouble and might need a be- an extra die for this? All right, you get inspiration, and his inspiration is just like, right. you know, a, a couple yeah. of words that, hey, don't yeah. suck at your next shot. Yeah. <laughs> that's his inspiration. Yeah, I can't do that. That, that, that feels Negative too inspiration. mechanical. It yeah. doesn't feel right. Yeah. And that yeah. depends on the character, too. <laughs> yeah, yep. You also run into the issue, you know, even when you're in that situation, you actually remember to use that. Then you like, okay, then the player then yes. forgets they get it too. It's like, oh, well, I just gave right. you this thing, and you forgot you get it. So what? What's the point of me yeah. giving it to you? Yeah. And I'd like to say tokens yeah. help, but like we yeah. have our tokens, and they have a little thing, and then ten minutes later, someone's like, why do I have this thing on? And it's like the bard just like <laughs> because I gave you inspiration yeah. ten minutes ago, and right. you haven't used it yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and now it's gone. Bye. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to say goodbye. Everybody say goodbye. And we will catch you. Bye. Bye. Bye.